It's the When Fishing Podcast. Applying techniques. Then I put the sea rigs on the A rig. Fresh ideas. They can't all be good ones. Talking stories. <laughs> reports. Observation. Probably too close. All to make you and I better fishermen. Pre-calculus. I was gonna say math. Yeah. So like, what? I mean, like, I was doing pretty well through like algebra two. Then once I hit pre-calc, I I failed it, or didn't get credit like three separate times. So I'm like, all right, I think I found my limit. Yeah. So um, yeah. So that kind of discouraged me from going like the way of biology as well. And so it's like, all right, I think the arts and the writing. And I realized that like something I really appreciated about you uh, was actually just the writing format that you that you had within the book you know it's like totally as far as i know it's like totally unheard of to have this sort of like uh casual candid wit like involved like inner interwoven it's unusual <laughs> yeah do you it's know true do you know any any others that no. okay <laughs> <laughs> i don't but but i've been trained to n- never to say well it's unique and, and i mean that's, right. that's so yeah. so i always fall back on well I don't know of any others. Yeah, I think that's the right way to go. When I yeah. when I hear people say that, like I'm the first person ever to catch a, like a, a you know a fucking thresher from a kayak, it's like that you know. Well, that's yeah, a- and there's a <laughs> so. there's a, uh, a singer songwriter uh, Ben Folds who has yeah. a song. There's always someone cooler than you. Yes, which is absolutely true. Song. So yeah. so uh, you you just have to be careful about what you. Yeah, exactly. No, state. that's funny. I actually. I think about that song sometimes. It's funny. I but, live that song. Yeah. I mean, it, it, because once you think you're hot shit, man, the universe is going to shut you down. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, I got to Humboldt and uh, they didn't, uh, I won't, I don't mean to like shit on their music program, but it's not their, well, it's not their key point. It's not their strong It's point. not their strong suit. It's not no. Berkeley. It's not Juilliard or no. whatever. And so, uh, you know, I got there, was ended up kind of feeling pretty lost about it, which, like, gave me a lot of time. Like, I didn't make many friends. I, I think I still have one friend from college and mm-hmm. um, uh, just spent a lot of time just, like, like a lot of all-nighters, literally, like, five, six nights a week uh, doing all-nighters in the practice rooms and just working on my craft and, uh, and then dropped out after two years and then, um, uh, and then just kind of, like... Uh, bobbled around parents house for a couple of years and moved to Boston then moved back and then COVID hit and then uh, now I'm in Huntington Beach when I I moved down to Torrance first and I was like okay I can go do the music thing in Hollywood and I can go do the fishing like down in Orange County or something and then uh, uh, once I was there uh, I was like you know what I really like the fishing down here and, and Hollywood is really disgusting and uh, I think globalization really serves uh, the music industry well. So I think that on some levels, yeah. absolutely. So yeah. like as far as I've found, like uh, like live playing in um, uh, at like the introductory level, it's like I have live playing experience from like open mics and things like that. I don't have a problem with that. So it's just a matter of like getting the word out. And you're not going to get the word out in like an open mic about your music. Nobody's really going to. Mm-hmm click on or uh, subscribe or whatever so it's like all right i'll just leave that alone do my own thing online do the advertising and stuff and just fish in orange county and uh 
Okay. And so I've, uh, yeah, so like my, my identity, if you want to know who I am, that's essentially a decent indicator of, uh, I, I really like to write. I really like the music. I really like the fishing. Um, so I've, uh, uh, with the, with the, uh, recording skills that I've acquired, uh, I have, and the equipment I've kind of eventually, uh, decided I want, uh, I could do a podcast and just try it out. And, uh, they've, I've done about 16 episodes or so, and they've, they've been mostly solo, uh, just like, just talking through like observations of a trip and, or like a series of trips for the week. And, and then like, you know, uh, playing around with rigging and playing around or like talking about how maybe to decipher like certain forecasts or patterns and things like that. And just going, not in an expert way, just like, just showing the process basically of a non-expert. And, uh, so, so how do you, how do you know if anyone's like listening to your podcast? So I get demographic or I get a stats on, um, uh, from the, what do you call it? The distributors, uh, -huh. uh who so, are, which, uh, who? so the main one that I signed up with is rss.com uh -huh. and they'll distribute to everybody. So, um, uh, I might, I listen most on Spotify and I think most people do. And, um, uh, so yeah, they'll, they'll tell me and, uh, I'm getting like, it's a very small podcast right now, but I'm surprised. I'm, I was surprised that there were any listeners to be uh -huh. honest. Uh, like before I even said anything on any social media or anything, I already had like a dozen listeners uh -huh. from like, like even across the world. And I'm like, that's very strange. Um, but you know, if, if people are into it and I, I think it keeps me, uh, keeps me on it, you know, like, okay, I, I should be thinking about something new and I should be trying to like, instead of going out every week and like saying, okay, like, let's, uh, you know, let's break down the, the same old bass trip. Like I could, you know, it, it could be the same exact trip and the same patterns for like, yeah. for like six weeks in a row. So it's like, why do, why talk about it like that when I could just keep bringing new ideas yeah. So, um, so yeah, it, it kind of keeps me fresh thinking about fresh stuff. And, uh, and so I've got a short list of, uh, uh, of, of, uh, guests who I would want to talk to and you're on that list. So okay. here we are. So, so, um, but back to music and the like, so like what all your parents care about is, are you making any money? Right. They're funny about that. Yeah. And. <laughs> So are you making any money? No, zero. So I'm, ah, okay. uh, I'm doing a... That's uh, good. Yeah, I'm doing Grubhub full-time right now. So that, that serves well with these uh, sort of creative projects. So did you explain to them about like what art is and the creative process and all that shit? So my... Uh, my mom was like, I don't know, you're smarter than us. Like, And then my dad... Uh, had a fit about it when I first told him because uh -huh. it's like I'd already been on this like fisheries biology train for sure. like a couple he of years. He had that in his mind. And so he was, yeah. That's so, a good job. Yeah, he was like, you could feed a family with that. And it's like, well. Let's see, he'll have, so, ben he'll have uh, insurance uh, yeah. for the government. It's good. Yeah. And then you say, mm, it's not going to happen. Right. So. And he goes like, what the fuck? Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, like, uh, at this point, uh, I am way past my my personal due dates and i'm like all right like can't can't say much about that other than you know do it um do it as efficiently as you can spend as much time 
as you can on it, but be as efficient as you can on it. And I, I felt like maybe I was a bit repetitive in my practice styles early on, but uh, here we are. And uh, uh, I've got, I do have a lot of music that's like sitting on, you know, sitting in the computer, like a couple hundred songs that are uh -huh. uh, like semi-built and there might be an album coming out at the end of the year finally. And um, so, you know, it's, it's moved forward just at its own pace. I, I've, uh, I remember re I, I read a lot of like entrepreneurial books, like in my early twenties about, uh, uh, well, entre entrepreneurship, but there was one, what was it called? It was, um, disruptive innovation. And so the idea of it was that when you have like a product that's not, um, doesn't have an established market, then you're like, you're really in no man's land about it. And so your, your ideas of like due dates and things like that are a little bit harder to uh, create like tangibility for, sure. you know? So like you, you can't, yeah, you, of course you can put certain timelines on yourself, but at the end of the day, it's like, it's just unmarked territory. So you just have to do it as you got to do it until it's done. So yeah. that's kind of assuming it's ever done. Yeah. So, well, the, the thing about art <laughs> yes, is that any kind of art, yeah, visual art or written art or whatever, is that when it's sincerely done, as opposed to I'm gonna I'm gonna paint some shit and sell them to tourists, but but art that comes from the heart, it is really the artist's way of trying to tell the truth, yeah. his or her truth, right? Which may not be our truth, or it may be our truth, and um, th there's no way of speeding that up or yeah. making that uh, more tangible or or even more saleable. I mean, art is art, and it's it's very personal. And yeah. maybe the art that you create, everybody else thinks is just garbage. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that it's not real, it's not true, and it and that it doesn't hold um, truth for the for the artist. So that's my long way of saying you may never make any fucking money. <laughs> but if it's important to you yeah. to tell the truth, then then. On one level, it doesn't matter. I mean, the other level is you got to pay your fucking rent. But, but maybe you know, if art is truly important to you, you'll uh, be Grubhub until you're like ninety-five years old. Yeah. And but on the other hand, you'll be really happy because you'll be doing art that, of course, no one else likes. Yeah. But but you like it. I mean, it's really. You know, the world is full of people who are trying to tell the truth and no one else cares and yeah. and more power to them. Yeah. So, yeah, go for it. I, I'm I empathize with your father and uh, because he's, he's past it at this point. It's well, been, it's but, been some time, but, but yeah, yeah, I'm, yeah, he's past it on one level. But when you're a parent, your brain changes. I mean, I mean, demonstrably, at least in. In females but probably in males too yeah. that their hormonal changes all of a sudden you like really care and are concerned by this little um, self-involved creature that's living in your house and and for the rest of your life as a parent you're concerned about it and it's hard when you perceive that your your child is not going to take an easy path yeah which is what you've decided to do yeah so good for you not good for your parents as much, but I mean, you're an adult. Yeah. Fuck it. Yeah. No, that's uh, uh, pretty much what it came down to. They're they're uh, certainly uh, 
have uh, reached their peace with it, I believe. Well, I don't know. As far well, as in I front know. of you anyway. Yeah, in front I of mean, me it's, anyway. <laughs> I mean, the, the other part of being a parent is, well, we don't let all of our dirty laundry and our fears hang out in front of our kid. Yeah, yeah. So you, you don't really, I mean, like my father lost all of our money in 1960. And my mother reminded me of that for years. And finally, when I was 13 or 14, I said, I'm not your friend. I'm your kid. And I just, I don't want to hear this, yeah. you know, in, in essence. So um, it would have been better if she had just kept it to herself yeah. and, and, and like that. Anyway, okay. So, um, well, where would you like to start? So uh, now let's, uh, well, we, we started with me. Let's uh, get into a little summary of your history. I listened to, I didn't want to be repetitive, so I went through, I went on to Spotify to see if the, you'd done any podcasts before. Uh, I listened through that, like, Hunter Gatherer podcast. So, um, I think uh, I did one, I can't remember, but is it, wasn't there one 99% indivisible, invisible, 99% invisible, something like that. I mentioned to my kids I was doing that uh -huh. three or four years ago, and they went, oh, wow, that's a really popular one. Um, and I, that had mainly to do with uh, my research around oil platforms out here. Gotcha. But I did one about hunter-gatherers. What was that? Oh, it was uh, this, I think you FaceTimed a guy uh, from, uh, he was like living in like the Bay Area. Uh -huh. And so he, he had a history in New England, and then he came out here, and so he was like asking about rockfish and the, oh. the interesting, uh, there, how there's some, uh, there are some Sebastis out there and, uh, yeah, there are. uh, and yeah, you guys shot the shit and, uh, some interesting stories and stuff like that. Okay. So, um, yeah. Right, I just, so you listened to that one. So I listened to that one. Just wanted to make sure that I wasn't going to ask like all the same questions, you know? Mm -hmm. Uh, and, uh, so, uh, I just want to get a, just to start off, just a brief summary of your history. So like getting into fishing and then really uh -huh. the the career path that uh led you into being where you are okay so um i'm milton love i'm a research biologist at the marine science institute university of california santa barbara and when i was six i had asthma as a kid in la and uh in 1953 uh my parents took me to the beach to santa monica and, and my asthma more or less disappeared. They went, oh, well, I guess we got to move to the beach. So we moved to Santa Monica, uh, down to an area in Ocean Park, where uh, some years later, the city of Santa Monica said, well, all of you guys have to move. Uh, and block after block after block of us, mo mostly lower middle class people. And uh, we're going to hand you some money, and then we're going to level your houses, and we're going to turn it into something else. So, but... Before that, uh, I lived at the beach. I could almost throw a rock uh, onto the sand. I mean, on a good day, maybe with the wind behind me, I could have. And uh, when I was six, my dad took me fishing on the Malibu Pier. And I caught, as I remember, two shiner perch and a white croaker, what, what we called tomcod at the mm -hmm. time. And uh, that was it, man. I was hooked. And I announced soon after that I was going to be an ichthyologist, a fish biologist. And uh, I, I lack uh, sufficient imagination for me to do anything else. So uh, from that point on, uh, I did very little else. Uh, I mean, I, I, you know, I went to school and shit like that. But I, uh, 
basically fished. Yeah. First, primarily surf fishing and on the Santa Monica Pier. And then by the age of about uh, 13, my dad would take me out on party boats. There used to be barges uh, all along the coast, so we'd go out on those. And then around 16, I just started going on sport fishing boats myself. And I, we had very little money. And so I paid for those trips, which at the time, off Santa Monica, were $4 for half day and six fifty for all day, which was a lot of money. And uh, I paid for them mostly by uh, selling illegally the fish that I caught on the Santa Monica Pier. There were two levels to the pier. And so what the, kind of fish were people buying? Uh, well, ultimately, they would buy almost anything if yeah. the price was right. I mean, you were selling... You were selling to Eastern European. It was all almost all women at the time, and you know there was a kind of sex role, gender role going on, and and so most of the homemakers were were women, and so it was mainly Eastern European women, uh, black folks, not a lot of Hispanics, but they I mean who uh, or Asians, but whoever showed up, and um, the big items, uh, rockfish were always big, quarter of pop. From- I mean, for a bocacci oh. or, or whatever. But a quarter was, I mean, if you multiply everything by 10, let's say, or even yeah. 20, you know, it's, it's a fair amount of cash for the time. Uh, so uh, uh, rockfish were big uh, and, and cheap. You couldn't get a lot of money for, a, for a, even a red, like a vermilion. You, at the most, you could get 50 cents. Mm-hmm. Uh, white sea bass didn't catch very many. Mm-hmm. Uh, you could get... Three or four dollars, yellowtail, three or four dollars, barracuda, which in the 20s and 30s were huge. It was the most popular market fish in the yeah. 20s or 30s were barracuda. And then people's uh, taste changed. And all of a sudden they're going like, wow, these are really strong tasting. What else you got? And oh, halibut, halibut were, I probably halibut were the most popular, but again, you didn't catch very many of those. Um, Benita, unfortunately, we didn't know that you had to gut them and bleed them yeah. and keep them cool. And so you put them in a bag and six hours later, you know, they're awful. Uh, occasionally, you'd find someone who would like mackerel and the like. Uh, like if you're fishing mackerel. on the pier and you get a pile perch or rubber lip, oh, yeah. man, you could sell those in a heartbeat. Those weren't easy to catch, though. Um, and bass. So kelp bass, sand bass. Yeah. You could get a quarter apiece uh, for those. And those were the those were the big ones. Uh, so I made enough money, generally, to just pay for a trip. And if I won the jackpot, which it was a buck a buck a pop at the time, then um, shoot, you could make enough money for for four trips or yeah. five trips. So I basically did that. So I did very little else yeah. until I was 18, except fish and unsuccessfully chase uh, women of my own age. Uh, so that was basically it. And then um, because I had announced when I was six I was going to be a fish biologist, it was always like that was in the cards. Yeah. And then the question is, well, where am I going to go to college? And UC San Diego had just started. Hmm. It opened in 64, I think, and I was a class of 65. Wow. And they were right next to Scripps Institute of Oceanography. Right. So I'm going like, oh, well, this is a no-brainer. I'm going to go to UC San Diego, and then uh, I'll go to graduate school at Scripps, and I'll be a fish biologist, and I'll live happily ever after. 
very little of that actually came about, just like real life, that most of the things you think are going to happen, they don't. And um, so I went there for the first year, and I almost failed. They were trying to make Renaissance people out of all of us. Mm. And the last Renaissance person was da Vinci. So it's been a long time, mm -hmm. and uh, so not so much. They ran out of transfer forms. I had to wait for, <laughs> for a new batch of transfer forms to come in. And, uh, so when they were making you trying to make your Renaissance person, is that yes. just like jamming down like like Latin and, and the arts and oh, if it was just only everything? that, it was everyone had to take physics. I, yeah. If you were an English major, you had to take physics and you had to take calculus. And the physics class, the textbook, Halliday and Resnick's uh, phys physics class, it was the same textbook used at UC Berkeley in the honors physics program. This is like for hardcore physics people. Well. There weren't that many of us at UC San Diego that year. And uh, so it was that. Uh, uh, they gave you a year of language. That's all. And until you passed an oral and written test, you, you didn't fulfill the requirement. And so uh, what was the, in French? I had never had French before, but I took French. So what was the oral test? Well, you sat down with two French graduate students. These are two women from France who were there uh, as literature majors. And you chatted for 20 minutes in French. And they decided if you passed or not. So it was like fairly in fucking intense. I lost <laughs> 30 pounds in my freshman year. It was wow. awful. I still have PTSD from the experience. And, but then I transferred to UC Santa Barbara up here. And uh, things were a lot better. Yeah. They weren't great but they were a lot better. They weren't great in the sense that uh, uh, you, you experience this in biology. If you're a biology major at a university, the first two years, you take almost no biology at all. You take all of your uh, um, general ed things. Yeah. You take uh, art and English and shit like that. And then you take uh, chemistry. You take physics. You take math. You're going like, well, where the fuck is the biology? And then you take like beginning biology, which is made inten intensively hard to weed out the weak. And so after a couple of years, I'm going like, I hate this. Like, where's the fish class and stuff like that? But then I decided I'd take one more year in my junior year. And um, fortunately, I started taking upper division classes like the theology class. And I went, okay, well, this is better. And uh, that's that's how I really got got started. Yeah. Yeah. And then uh, I don't know. I got all three degrees here at Santa Barbara, and then I, I did a postdoc down in L.A. at Occidental College. All of them having to do with fishes of uh, one sort or another. I was just really interested in fish. Right. Like, well, what do they do? Where do they go? Do they migrate? What time of the year do they spawn? What do they eat? Exactly. What's their feeling about life? You know, stuff like that. So. Uh, I would pick a species like white croaker. No one ever worked on white croaker yeah. until I did. Yeah. And I thought, well, they're, su they're sucked in in huge numbers by the coastal power plants. And, really? Uh, yeah, or they were. I mean, there aren't very many coastal power plants right. around anymore. But yeah, that was a major species. And yet, like, well, do we know anything about them? Yeah. So uh, I did a big study on the life history of them, and I... I figured out how how fast they grow and what they ate and and all that stuff. So I did that, 
and uh, but I really miss Santa Barbara. I really miss uh, the area. I miss the campus. And so basically around 19, what was it, 85 or something, I went back and I talked to my major professor here who had an empty lab. And I said, can I just come up here and uh, occupy the lab and write grant proposals and try to basically pay my way? And he said, yeah, sure, whatever. And so uh, came up, I had two kids, a wife, the whole trip. And I was really bad at it. I was really bad at writing grant proposals. For many years, I didn't get funded at all. Yeah. And I had to support myself doing other things. So uh, there was an IMAC film company, IMAX film company. They were doing a film called The Living Sea. They contacted me, hey, do you want to help write the script and write the teacher's guide? So they gave me 10K to do that. So I did that. And so that came out? Uh, oh yeah, that came out. What a long was the time name? Ago. What's the name of that? The Living Sea, uh, which it was pretty good. They were really careful yeah. about getting the science right, so that was cool. Uh, Greg McGillivray, who whose company it was, I sat in his office in Laguna Beach, and he said, "Well, we always we always uh, have a teacher's guide, mm-hmm. and we want you to write the teacher's guide, and uh, you you write humor, so uh, we want." want it to be funny I went fine that's what I do and I wrote the whole teacher's guide and then they gave me a whole bunch of money and Greg said oh we had to cut all the humor out oh. and, and and I have found over the years yeah that humor is the first thing that, that gets cut uh, I've had that happen a number of times uh, I get paid but then they go like oh well Howard Hall I remember who's an underwater cinematographer uh, years ago, he calls me and he goes like, well, I got some money from PBS, from uh, Nova, to uh, do some uh, documentaries. And I wrote one on Cocos Island, filmed it all, it's all done, and I want you to write the narrative. And I went, fine. And he, he said, I'll give you $1,000. And I said, fine. He said, make it funny. And I went, sure. So I, I did, I made it funny. And He's, a couple months later, he sent me a, a VHS tape with him reading the narrative. Eventually, someone else did, but he called it a scratch narrative. Hmm. And I'm listening, and I'm playing it, and I'm going like, well, where's the yucks? The yucks are gone. Yeah. So I called him, and I went, well, what's the deal? He said, oh, man, uh, WGBH in Boston, they kind of oversaw that stuff. They don't want, they don't want the humor. So I thought, well... I got paid, so yeah. Um, and then I wrote for magazines. I did a bunch of of humorous science pieces for magazines. And then around, I don't even remember anymore. Early '90s, you probably know better than I. I, I self-published a book called "Probably More Than You Want to Know About the Fishes of the Pacific Coast," which merged uh, biology about local fishes with um, with yucks. Yeah. And uh, I remember I sent. A copy to uh, to the LA Times and what was his name? Their book reviewer, Charles Solomon. That was his name. He hated the book. He hated the book. He hated the humor. And uh, what did he call it? He called it a fetid pool. He said that the science was like walking on stepping stones through a fetid pool, which I thought was a fabulous turn of the phrase. Now it turns out that. People bought the book 
in spite of it. I mean, right. I had several people go like, yeah, I read that art, that review in the LA Times, and then I went out and bought the book, and I thought, okay, yeah. there's no such thing as like a bad review, apparently. So I did that. Eventually, I started getting funding uh, here at UCSB to look at the role that oil platforms play as habitat for fishes, and I rode that wave for more than a decade. I got great steaming gobbets of money to for our lab to uh, to look at that, and uh, and then I decided to re up that book, and I wrote certainly more than you yes. want to know about the fishes of the Pacific Coast, which is like six hundred and fifty pages. Right. Of, yeah, I got of, that one too. Yeah. Yeah, fighting fury. Yeah. And in full color and <laughs> and shit like that. But I always thought of it back to a discussion you and I had twenty five minutes ago. I always viewed it as art. Yeah. And. Uh, uh, I don't draw. I draw lollipop trees, and I don't write music. I can sing okay, but I don't write music, and I don't paint and shit like that. But I can write, yeah, in an entertaining way, and that's my art. And yeah. so I decided, well, I'm gonna self-publish this book. It cost me 50k finally, but for for the certainly or the probably certainly. Okay. Uh, uh, and I didn't really care if I made money. I just wanted to price it so that people could buy it. I, I was happy if it broke even. Yeah. And the reality is, uh, I've probably made, I have, I've made some money. Yeah. But really, if I had stuck the 50K, if I had bought Johnson & Johnson stock, yeah. I could have made more money doing that. Yeah. Then, but I didn't really care. Right. I, that wasn't the goal. The goal was to tell my version of the truth in one way or another. And... Um, so that's what the book, you know, that's what the book does. And, yeah. And uh, it, I just view it as a, a work of art. And, I do uh, too, I think. So the, thank you. So there you go. Yeah. That's That brings you up to date. Uh, got divorced. Uh, married somebody I knew in high school. Turns out both of my wives I knew in high school. Yeah. And which is a pathology, if you think about it. Are there no other women on this planet? I actually, I, <laughs> I now, get into that a I tell, <laughs> I tell my wife Jane. I said, "There's no uh, chance that I can get divorced. I only know two women in high school, and so that's it. That's the whole pool yeah. to to draw from. Yeah. So, I guess that's it. Uh, that's funny. I had five years of therapy. I can tell anybody anything. So if you have questions, Good. I've got answers. Uh, that's that. That is funny that you bring that up. I mean, like I. Like I met my current girlfriend at uh, online dating like a couple of years ago. She ah. didn't go to my school or nothing. She came from San Gabriel Valley. I come from Newbury Park, Thousand Oaks. Okay. And, uh, but like I definitely noticed for a long time after high school, like I was like, was there something in the water where I grew up? Because I felt like I just got along better with everybody over there. I know we developed together, but that's still it's like, hmm. like it just felt like there was a certain level of understanding or intellect or view of the world that just came like maybe i misunderstood everybody too maybe i was in in a delusion but like i just felt like these high school friends that i had i still have a few of them and they're probably still my best friends and the well, the females i felt like for the longest time like why can't i find the ones that i found in high school in high school and but like, i think your point was well taken you developed emotionally with these people yes and you you once you're well, I don't think males mature until they're forty, but but in theory, we we mature in our early twenties or yeah. whatever, and, and we don't have that same experience unless you yeah. go into the military, for sure. instance. 
yeah. and then it's the same I hold the same kind of experience so do, so does your girlfriend have like a job yeah she has a job she has, she, she has two jobs actually so, so she has so, real jobs yeah she has real jobs yeah as, as opposed to you <laughs> precisely who have, yes I have nothing There's two sport boats. He needs to be on the deck okay, on a so sport boat. That's that's a different thing. Where uh, I'm not I'm not looking to uh, get my hundred ton. I'm oh, gonna, okay. I'm gonna do a six pack. Oh, um, okay. No, that's a whole different story. Yeah. So no, that, uh, that's fine. yeah. I was I was looking into that and uh, uh, like I think I've got maybe like sort of a new school mentality about that. Where it's like I really would like to, if I'm gonna do it, I really would like to promote like catch and release on the boat uh-huh. and like. Uh, doing things at a smaller scale but like and also have like a fuel efficient sort of boat where like I've done a lot of uh, research on like how fuel efficient can you get a boat and like uh, with a catamaran with like with the right outboards you can get even there's this uh, New Zealand boat what are they uh, I forget the name of them but they're uh, uh, built out of New Zealand this is a 26 foot catamaran aluminum that put put 250 horsepower outboards on it and you, you can get like four or five miles of the gallon on it wow. going like 20 30 knots so like wow yeah so like wow. i'm like okay like you know the the reason i picked uh, my boat the inflatable with six horsepower i get like 20 miles a gallon 30 miles a gallon and like i so i can go anywhere i That's want pretty on, amazing yeah so i can i can really fuck up and like not catch fish and things like that and it's going to be pretty low you know entry cost and like yeah. So I've, you know, I've gone for bluefin tuna in it, like, probably at least 20 times. I finally got one a couple weeks ago, but it was just over a couple of years, you know, burning. I, I burned, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles trolling for him. And then I finally got one. And that would, that fish would have cost me, like, you know, like five, ten thousand $10,000 oh, or gosh, something. Yes. But it cost me about maybe a 100 bucks. So, like, I'm pretty stoked on that. And, like, just learning, learning the ropes at such a low uh, price threshold uh, yeah. is is pretty big for me right now. And then once I get into it further, it's like, well, if I can get, if I can still have a boat that's like a charter boat getting four miles a gallon, I think I found it. Like that would. Yeah, I mean, if that's what what you. I was a commercial fisherman in, that's in right. uh, college. Yeah. And uh, briefly, yeah. I wasn't very good at it. My sure. partner. So what did you was, what did you go for? Oh, we were in the harbor. Well, the first thing is, my partner and I bought a. Uh, a skiff with a shitty engine and we fished for the undersea garden it was a public aquarium mm-hmm. so we kept everything alive which was an experience yeah and uh, but they didn't need an infinite number of fish so we started uh hook and lining for it was basically rock cut and um we finally got a fathometer a huge furuno one of those strip charts yeah. oh we love that furuno so much and uh there was it was open access at the time and there was no quota on on rock cod on yeah. rockfish you didn't make much for junk well i'll turn around for things that they called reds which were vermilion rockfish cow cod uh canary rockfish i think like green spotted things like that you get 12 cents a pound yeah and for junk which were bocacci's and chilies you get six cents a pound which was even at that time Let's call this 1970. That was not a lot of money. Yeah, I, it was okay. I mean, gas was 30 cents a gallon, but it it was a lot of work, and particularly if you were hook and lining. But so I did that, and then eventually I went back to here, 
uh, summer was over, and uh, my uh, business partner, John, he uh, he continued and um, eventually wound up lobster guy, and I think he had some uh, gillnet stuff, and he did sea bass and and the like. So, yeah. Um, yeah. What I liked best was uh, we you know we just interacted with all the people in the harbor. Yeah. Harbors attract the most bizarre bunch of. <laughs> People. That was at Santa Barbara. Imagine yeah. Santa Barbara. Yeah. It was trippy, man. All those people. And uh, at the time, a lot of the commercial guys, not so much now, uh, were basically people, men, I don't think there were any women at the time, who didn't get along with other people. And they didn't have to. I mean, yeah. okay, maybe you had to have a decan. But um, I mean, you, I mean, I remember Ralph Hazard, kind of the dean of draggers, he, he, uh, he, he did it all by himself. Yeah. He uh, deployed the net and he pulled it in and he sorted it all by himself. So, and, to, and he must have been like 80 before he quit. Yeah. So, he had all these really interesting people and uh, uh, I really just liked hanging out. And at the time, some of the older fishermen, they remembered like the 30s. Yeah. And when things were trivially easy in the sense of there were no there was almost no uh laws yeah. uh, governing how you fished where you fished what you caught and uh you know you needed a commercial license which i don't know what it costs it, co- well, it cost me 50 bucks it must have been paltry in yeah. in 1930 so that's about all you needed that yeah. and a salami sandwich and you were set yeah and so it was, it was just a very different time, and I'm sure, if I was live in 1930 and could talk to the people who fished here in 1880, yeah, it would have been even more bizarre and yeah. different. And How far out were you going to uh, with your commercial fisheries? How far out to sea? Yeah. Oh, well, most of it was uh, with. Th- there's a a carbonate formation. Uh, talk, uh, carbonates are. Are rocks created when natural gas comes out of the seafloor and it solidifies? So it looks oh. like a rock. So there's a big carbonate formation in the middle of the Santa Barbara Channel. Yeah, I fished that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So it's called the Twelve Mile. Okay. And part of it. Then you go to the east, down coast, and it becomes Rincon Reef. But it's all basically the same shit. Right. So we would go out that far, but most of our stuff was strictly coastal, yeah. like right off the campus here. Uh, three miles out was the so-called um, three mile reef there's yeah. a four mile reef outside of Summerlin uh, there's a really nice rock the six mile reef that's located outside the, the platforms off of Summerlin I mean there's all these spots yeah now I've uh, when I first got the boat I was living in Thousand Oaks and still during COVID and I was um, uh, so there's uh, the Navionics app which is really nice it, you can get your relief structure everything in, uh-huh. in great detail Um and I was having a lot of trouble looking for stuff in out of directly out of Ventura that wasn't the islands, and uh, I wanted to. Oh, avoid... well, it's all soft. I mean, most of it's soft. Yeah, it's it's just a lot oh, of mud. Oh, sure. Yeah, so I came up here quite a bit, and like I know there's like a yeah like a two or three mile two mile reef or something straight out of the harbor. Like there's due, the one mile due south, one mile. Okay, right? so there's, there's one mile. that's that's been loaded with whitefish for a while. Uh-huh. Couldn't find any rockfish on it. No nope. fish that twelve Too mile. Shallow. Like, uh, there's a few little stones here and there. I've got some starries and shit like that. Mm-hmm. But it was, uh, yeah, coastal pickings. Well, 
I did go up once uh, over. I guess that would have been that three mile reef over right so out right, here. So right, it's uh, it starts opposite the Goleta Pier, yeah. more or less, and then it runs west almost to Platform Holly. Okay, on and off. I believe. Yeah, I believe I fished that. It was like I was in 350, 400 feet of water, something like that. That's actually. I know it's that's right. Deeper than I thought because okay. the drop off here was, is in fifty fathoms. So once you okay. get to three hundred feet, Maybe it drops it, like a bomb. So right. it's inshore of that. Okay. Yeah, I thought it was due south of here. I could pull up the Navionics and just confirm, but yeah. it's uh, uh, somewhere. Yeah, really. I I just remember and, like and uh, we we were just out there two weeks ago. Yeah. With an ROV, um, uh, doing fish surveys, and there's a fair amount. There's a uh, some Pretty large bocaches. There's a, a okay. lot of vermilions. Yeah, it's I pretty think cool. I think I might have fished this area right here. So that's a, it's a little southwest of here. It's quite the ride. <laughs> Going like ten knots. Uh, yeah. Straight into a three to five west swell. Yeah, you bounce a lot. Yeah. So. So the thing about commercial fishing, and and I think if you go back to fourteen fifty or I don't know, you go back even further. Commercial fishermen always say the same stuff, and that is when fish are rare, the price is really high. Yeah. But we don't make any money because the fish are rare. Yeah. When they're really common, the price is really low, and we don't get, make any money because everybody's bringing in the same fucking fish, right? Yeah. So uh, that was true uh, here that uh, my, my friend Merritt McCray, who used to own the Seahawk here, and Eventually went back to school and and uh, he worked for me for a while. He wrote this essay that was hilarious. He was when he was a deckhand on, I think it was Irv Grisbeck's boat, the Sundowner, which eventually wound up in San Diego. It was here anyway. It was a sport fishing boat. Yeah. But when the weather was really good in the winter, when they could see Santa Ana's coming and they knew it was going to be flat off of Conception and Arguello, hmm. they basically said, "We're going to go commercial fishing." They yeah. had a license and stuff. It was all hook and line. But that was the only time when it flattened out there and you could fish. Yeah. So there was still a lot of rock cod there. And they would check with the, the local uh, processor and they go like, well, what, what price are you offering? Yeah. And he'd go like, whatever it was, 25 cents a pound for reds and 15 for junk. Fine. Yeah. So they go up there, they load the boat, uh, put them on the ice, they're up there for three days, come back. And the processor goes, oh, man, everybody brought in product. So I can't give you the 25 cents. I can mm -hmm. give you 15 for everything. And they're going like, well, what the hell? I mean, what, what is that? And but there's no, but here, the choices are: you sell local to this guy, mm -hmm. or you truck it all down to San Pedro, down to the Forty Thieves, mm -hmm. and uh, you don't know what's going to happen there. I mean, if they if they think that you're desperate because you trucked it all down there, they're not going to give you the top price either. So yeah. it's, I really feel sorry for commercial guys. It's yeah. an eternal problem. Yeah. Yeah. Now, though, because you have limited entry in most fisheries, yeah. and there's only so much product you could bring in, yeah. those kind of swings are not as common. Yeah. I think they do occur like in the black cod fishery still, because you have, or did recently, because you have a number of guys, and I say guys because, again, well, yeah, it's yeah. all males, um, a number of guys can bring in product the same general period and the price yeah. drops, but it's not as bad. It's still a racket. I mean, it, yeah. I'm, I'm really on the side of the guys who go out and beat themselves to crap trying to catch something. Yeah. 
No, it's Louise. Uh, I've heard tough stuff and uh, uh, sometimes, yeah, you just got to do what other people aren't willing to do. Like some guys really like do do best in like the hagfish market and things yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, there was there was that gold rush period 30 years ago when um, Korean buyers first came to California and said, we'll buy hagfish. Yeah. And everybody's going like, seriously? And they go like, yeah. And for a short period of time, that was true. Uh, everybody geared up for hagfish. They were using buckets with holes in them and you put dead mackerel in it. They were using official Korean hagfish traps. And oh my God, if your boat floated, you could go out and catch hagfish. And then uh, fairly soon, the buyers went, you know, uh, we can't pay you as much. Yeah. Uh, because uh, you're throwing all these hagfish together, they're still alive, and they're biting each other. So mm. all of this product, uh, all of these skins have holes in them. And we're using, we're selling these things to people in Korea who are making eel skin wallets out of them. They don't like the product anymore. Yeah. And all of a sudden you had to treat the product better all of a sudden. And yeah. that became more expensive. And then uh, it was the same gosh everybody's bringing in hagfish we're gonna only, only gonna give you 75 percent of what we used to give you and you know it's the same yeah endless racket um but for i don't know some short period of months it was just balls to the wall yeah. it was like really interesting to watch yeah but like every other new fishery uh everybody jumped on it and then most people got shafted yeah at the end gotcha yeah yeah uh, these days I have looked at like the pricing of it. I just priced it out like last week or something. Mm -hmm. Like if I, if I wanted to like go for bluefin, like try sure. and try and catch a, a bluefin, throw, throw a wet rag over it, take it over to San Pedro. Like how much does it cost before I get on the water? And it's, I think it was like 1700, $2,000 to like get every, every piece from uh -huh. like, like a $500, like, like California permit to uh, certifying your boat to getting the, uh, federal or international bluefin uh, like Pacific pelagic mm -hmm. permit thing and then something else and yeah it was uh, it's like okay like you know and then on top of that they can they can close the the market on on bluefin they and they can. do and uh, yep. uh, so it's uh yeah it's a, it seems like a, a bit of a tough In go, a way but. you're better if you want to like enter a fishery um, you can uh, uh, hook and line rock cod yeah and you're, there's a quota, yeah. But if you, for instance, and you need more than a commercial license, but I have a friend who fishes out of uh, down near L.A. and he he does that and he sells to the farmers at the farmers market in Little Saigon, yeah. And uh, he does okay, yeah. So obviously he can't do it every day, yeah, for all these reasons. But that's a one of the few entry-level commercial fisheries left yeah. in California. So hook and line rock cod, hook and line rock cod, hmm. and you gotta make sure you have the right licenses. Flaw, yeah, yeah. flaw, flaw. But uh, he does okay. Yeah, no, that to me that would uh, that would I almost uh, hopped onto one of those uh, hook and line out of uh channel islands uh, uh -huh. harbor and then uh when he when he mentioned that i would be gone for like three to six days at a time i was like i got i, I have a life so i it's a little bit uh -huh. much at the time um i might have taken it at other points in my life but uh i would have loved to learn 
how he did that and over like three to six days like what Mm -hmm. what the damage is and all these things but yeah i've thought about i've uh the rock cod one seems very doable um sometimes you know when the conditions are right it's pretty fucking easy the other one that uh i always find interesting is trolling for halibut yeah Uh, something i've been wildly unsuccessful with Uh, well yeah (laughs) yeah yeah. 50 years ago nobody commercially no one trolled for halibut at all yeah you know the sport boats when i was a kid in santa monica uh and i was out with uh oren winfield on the bright two the bright two had been built i think it was like 1906 and oren was had been built in 1900 he was he went to santa monica high school same high school i went to in uh class of 1917 and very soon thereafter started um skippering um party boats party boat fisheries started in california uh, around 1920 1922 something like that it, there's a debate but by the early 20s there were sport fishing boats yeah. in a number of places santa monica being one of them and Oren, among other things he started working uh the, the sport boats and here it is let's just say 1960 about 1960 let's say 1962 and there i am on the boat and um uh in the summertime when they weren't fishing rock cod they would fish in santa monica mainly sand bass kelp bass Mm -hmm. and and halibut and uh he would drift all day long it was a different time you, you, I mean, now you try drifting for halibut with with thirty passengers, and they're going like, "What the fuck is this?" Oh, yeah. We caught a total of two halibut, yeah. and there would be a riot, right? Yeah. They would uh, chew out the bottom of the boat. Uh, then, for whatever reason, Oren could pull that stunt off. Yeah. Uh, thirty passengers. If people got fifteen halibut, yeah, no one complained, right? Yeah. So. Um, that was the way you caught halibut at the time. You you know you drifted off Sunset Boulevard or right. That was a good place, Sunset Boulevard, uh, or you drifted at the foot of Chautauqua, or what was it? Some other area just below the Malibu Pier. I mean those or Topanga Canyon. Topanga Canyon usually held bigger halibut, but fewer of them. There was an area that bubbled that had uh, natural gas coming out. And you know, we've got, like that. We've got a, a, an area like that in Huntington Beach. Uh, I mean, it's we've got a, a couple, uh, you know, uh, oil rigs that are like on the inside, like a couple miles off. And I kill it with bass out there. And like like you mentioned, it's, it's those carbonate um, buildups uh-huh. because, you know, I always see the bubbles. I know I know I'm about to get bit because I'm, I'm driving over the uh-huh. bubbles. And uh, uh, but it's loaded with bass and there are no halibut. Like I've been doing like a bounce ball for like all year and i've caught hundreds of bass and zero halibut so yeah well i mean if the if the bottom is truly at all carbonaceous then it's basically hard yeah so i mean i think there's a lot of i think it goes between like you know hard and soft bottom so i would think that coming over the top of it catch a bass then a little bit past it catch a halibut but it's halibut tend to like well they like soft bottom but they actually like what are called ecotones between hard yeah. and soft like yeah. at the edges of kelp beds they don't like living in the kelp bed but they like living next to a hold fast like right. that and so i'm kind of surprised you didn't i know that's what so i'm thinking back to the the original point yeah um there are guys in uh ventura harbor i don't know if they're in cisco's also ventura harbor who um specialize in in trolling for butts and yeah. 
I remember the first guy who did it that I was aware of was a guy named Phil Bagul, who was a commercial fisherman in, in Santa Barbara. A very, I think he's alive still. A really smart man. Yeah. And uh, I think he had a degree in a fisheries degree. And I don't know how he came up with, with trying that stunt, but it worked beautifully. Yeah. And he worked, he, he trolled primarily off Hollister Ranch, up a, below Point Conception, places like that, which weren't picked over at all. Yeah. And early on, he did, as I remember, ferociously well. Yeah. So, yeah, and you could try, you yeah. could try that. No, I've I've uh, I've been trying it. Uh, I figure I've I've thought for the better half of the year that uh, uh, like that spot would be the golden spot for halibut. Finally, talked to a, a kayaker who was in the area, and he's like, "Oh, I go for," <laughs> he said, "I go for threshers and black sea bass." <laughs> I'm like, "Okay, oh, really? uh, you know, I think he's catching release on everything." I but hope so. Yeah, uh, at least I hope with but, the black sea bass. Yeah, I, I think he like he. It was pretty clear that he's just in it for the tow ride, but like uh, he yeah. was. Uh, uh, I just thought it was funny that he just. You fish for halibut. How about but, like inside the harbor? Yeah, I've uh, I've only tried it once actually, like just uh, the other day, but. Um, uh yeah i think in the winter uh i'm gonna try that a lot more uh or just off days outside of the harbor but uh yeah it's been i know i know they're there i haven't tried that hard for them but like now that i've gotten into the habit of like slow trolling like for everything everywhere uh i'm done very very well on trolling for bass now um which nobody ever does but for uh which kind of bass uh calicos and sand bass but mostly mostly sand bass it seems uh at least in the in the zones that i'm picking off you work in like anaheim bay for bay bass uh you know i i really don't um i try to avoid uh anaheim bay or i guess i'm i'm in anaheim bay uh huntington harbor right um so like i haven't i guess i'm i'm avoiding long beach harbor it's just disgusting but um they uh uh, i've you know i've picked through there on shore and caught a few and uh I think on off days I'm going to start going a little bit more, um, just trying to really focus up on the harbor for the spotties and stuff. But yeah, uh, yeah. One thing, How about near the bait barges? Yeah, that, I mean the nearest one would be Nachos, which is on the east end mm-hmm. of uh, the break wall. And uh, you know I've caught some mackerel there. I haven't tried too hard, but yeah, I I generally uh, there's a line in my head that I really try to avoid, uh, like basically like the horseshoe. And like the break wall, Long Beach, just because it's like smells a little bit. So just this huh. weird still water kind of a like like I you go you go that way and you have like urban vibes. You go south and like you're into Huntington Beach and just like I went after um, the tropical depression, Hillary, uh, like 48 hours afterwards. Checked out the horseshoe, just chocolate mud water, yeah. uh, even like five miles off, uh, like. You know, weird short period that wasn't forecasted. Blah blah blah. And then I get, I'm like, okay, this sucks. Like I'm not getting bit. I see the, I see marks. Like there's definitely yeah. bass. There's some junk around. And then I start heading back after like an hour or two. I'm like, just you know, just call set. Came out too early. And then I started heading back. I get out front of Huntington Harbor, and all of a sudden, like water's clear blue. I keep going south, and it's just like 20 foot visibility. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, you know, like people do well at the horseshoe. Like I, I like doing my own thing like elsewhere and like finding littler stones and things where like nobody's around instead of like yeah. there's always like a dozen boats at least on the horseshoe and stuff like that. So I know there's fish there. I mark them, but I've, I've not had great luck with those like sort of areas that uh, the reefs out there like the horseshoe and Isers uh, mm-hmm. is another good one that like 
a lot of people do well on and whenever i stop on it it's just like like a little bit you know piss and it's just like i oh. have a, i remember a, i had a chat with russ eiser one time and oh, yeah. he uh he insisted that there were two species of barracuda off california yeah. commonly yeah. They've actually caught, I think, another species of barracuda. Occasionally, it's a tropical one. But he said there's two kinds. Yeah. One is the, the usual one we're all aware of. And he yeah. said the other one is a dwarf species. And it never gets very big. And his point was there should be no size limits on barracuda. You should be able to keep 12-inch long ones or mm -hmm. whatever, 15-inch long ones. Because that's the species that it actually matures when it's really small. Yeah. And therefore, there shouldn't fishing game should shouldn't have the laws yeah i remember thinking like this is bullshit i, I remember thinking like <laughs> what the fuck is this and but you know yeah. he was like whatever 70 years old at the time and yeah i didn't feel it was my place to like correct him or anything those old guys i mean there's another example russ eiser what a character oh yeah. my god and i mean seriously a really interesting man and you know there's artificial reefs named after him and yeah i, I mean all that stuff yeah that's that's funny um I'll uh, uh, move a, a little bit along. Uh, mm -hmm. So are, are you teaching classes? No, I actually, I'm a professional researcher. So gotcha. I've taught classes here, but mainly uh, I do research. Gotcha. Um, so yeah, I'll, I'll, uh, we were starting to get into the, the speciation there with the barracudas and uh -huh. uh, yeah. quasi. And I've got quite a few questions that I've, been i suppose i could have emailed you a long time ago no, about no, a lot that of different would, things that wouldn't have been fun yeah i know that's kind of what i thought but like sure. uh uh yeah so like i guess the first thing i wrote down uh we'll touch on uh, we'll get into it uh, is uh how is it that uh, great danes and chihuahuas are the same species yes. and yet sunset rockfish and vermilion rockfish are the are different species you know well on the one hand you have you have humans directing evolution. Yes. yes. And so, so you have humans going like, okay, well, we got your wolf here. Seems relatively friendly. Let's see what we can do. Well, we're going to breed for s specific traits. Right. In other words, there's intent, right? Humans, they, they don't go like, well, we're just going to let these things breed and see what happens. That's a, we don't care. Well, that's, uh, that's not the way nature works. Nature works like, well, we're just going to let these things breed and uh, th there's going to be selection for certain traits, but it's random. Mm -hmm. So you, you don't wind up with uh, a species that has a Great Dane in it and a Chihuahua in it because one of those is going to get eaten by something else. Mm -hmm. Either the Great Dane or the Chihuahua and so you don't wind up with those huge differences mm -hmm. within a species. What you wind up with are subtle differences. Mm -hmm. And so in the case of sunsets and vermilions, first of all, no one even realized there was two species until right. uh, John Hyde figured that out uh, genetically, like whatever that was 20 years ago, because uh, they look a lot alike. Yeah. And truly, if you went back in time, I'm just pulling numbers out 50,000 years ago, mm. there were not two species. Right. These are like brand new species. Right. Uh, another example is uh, black and yellow rockfish and gopher rockfish. Well, they're barely genetically different, yeah. barely. And there's a bunch of hybrids. And 
really the only way humans can tell them apart other than genetically is one is black and yellow yeah. and the other is uh, pink and brown. And right. I mean, that's about it. So yeah, the answer is because it's like random. It's not like there, there's not some agency pushing evolution. Right. So is there, uh, is there a way besides genetics that you could uh, now, in your book, you you said I don't know if it was in your book or if I read it online somewhere uh, that like deeper typically uh, deeper than a hundred meters is a sunset and shallower than yes. Meters so the is a active million. word there is typically yes. And uh, at the extreme, if you go to Avila Beach and you put your boat in the water and you go up to Point Buchan, let's say, and you're diving or you're fishing in sixty feet of water. If you catch a red rockfish, yeah. that is a vermilion rockfish. Yeah. Why is that? Well, number one, no one's ever seen a sunset north of Point Conception, number one. Sure. Number two, it's really shallow. Yeah. And again, sunsets as adults don't live in, in shallow water. Yeah. Now, okay, so now let's go to Palos Verdes. And uh, uh, where are the vermilions and where are the sunsets? Well, the adult vermilions are shallow and the adult sunsets are deeper, but the kids are both shallow. Mm -hmm. So if you're a larval vermilion and a larval sunset and you're just drifting around for a month or two and then it's time to settle out, yeah. uh, you, both of those species settle out in 20 feet of water, 30 feet of water over little cobbly shit or, or yeah, usually kind of cobbly stuff. And one of the species, as they grow, winds up swimming deeper than the other species. So, uh, yeah, you can, if you catch a, a, what looks to you like a red yeah. in 450 feet of water in Southern California or off Northern Baja, California, that's probably a sunset. Yeah. I have trouble telling them apart. I mean, if you, if you put two fish there and uh, next to me and you said, one of these is a sunset, one of these are a million, I'm going like, okay, I, I trust you're right, but yeah. I don't know, man. I've, I've got one uh, species nerd buddy, uh, ben, ben Cantrell, shout out. Uh, he, um, uh, he was theorizing that you can tell the difference by by how bright the red is like they're uh -huh. like the deeper ones are like a brighter orange and then like uh, -huh. uh and then the vermilions that he like he's fishing out of or he would be fishing out of la jolla and so like fish in sub i think for him he noticed like sub 250 feet they were like a very brick red and then north of uh, or i guess uh deeper than 250 feet you would see like a significant or a noticeable change to like uh -huh. a brighter red and so a brighter red, a brighter red, you know, almost orange or whatever. Yeah, so. that, that's kind of the key word. So that they, in theory, yeah. sunsets kind of look like canary rockfish, which are okay. definitely orange. Yeah, canaries are orange and gray. Yeah, and sunsets often are pretty orange and not very red, hmm. but it. If, if only that worked every time, it would be yeah. great. We would all be so happy. Yeah. But um, and, yeah, and it doesn't I mean, always work. I could, I could also see how, like, just being in deeper water, you would have, they could potentially have the brighter red as, uh, like, it would turn into a, 
it morphs into it's not red down there so the deeper you go the more red the fish are so maybe that would affect the pigmentation that only works i mean red light doesn't exist below about 60 feet right so if you're bright red in 100 feet or bright red in a thousand feet you're black sure it okay. doesn't matter so there's not been selection for brighter red yeah if and in fact the reality is if fish that live really deep are black they're yeah. not even red yeah. so it depends on the species yeah yeah so it sounds good that's a um some so i i fished uh like the deeper ends of the 14 the last one no last oh, yeah null. i've been down in, in a submarine there i'm gonna ask you about that that's as trippy. well but that's that's uh it's i fish from 750 to a thousand uh -huh. over there uh like a couple months ago and i think i'll hit it again it's been kind of a windy year so it's hard to get out like too far offshore in a little tiny boat but um uh i caught a couple like every fish i brought up was a new species which was really oh, great like cool. so uh you know I've, I've it's been very difficult for me to get new new rockfish species after yeah. doing it so many times right. but it was like six i think i got five six new species in one day it was a a rose thorn yeah uh mexican uh -huh. a black gill uh -huh. um a bank a pink i've already gotten a bank but oh, the banks are actually pink. a little bit shallower up there i think maybe pink. 400 feet wow. so i got a pink um mm. and then uh, uh and then another fish nerd showed me how to uh, uh distinguish a pink from uh you know they what? look mo more the most like green blotch yes and so like uh mm -hmm. the the gill rakers are a little bit mm. shorter yes on indeed. the pink kind of stubby uh and then uh i was trying to figure it out from the fins where it's like 17 versus mm -hmm. 18 yeah i, uh, I can't remember that there is a and, and then there's a problem where there's an overlap like, though. yeah there's an overlap but at least they overlap at 17 but mine had 18 so i was safe with that but if i checked under the gills i'm pretty confident it was a pink yeah. but i got the last but not least was a i think it was a chameleon uh, um that makes sense but i just want to run it by you because it uh it perplexed me okay and uh uh, it was hard to say. I know that there's like a little thing on its nose. There's a little spine that's like forward or something like that. And well, that's uh, the key character, it, uh, right? I think like, those are lacrimal spines. Um, probably the the thing that is a little surprising: chameleons, hence their name, turn bright, bright golden red when they hit the surface. Okay. Actually, when you look at them underwater in yeah. like 900 feet of water. They're almost without pigment at all. They tend yeah. to be Yeah, no, when it white. first came up, uh, I think when it first came up, it was, it okay. came up alongside a Mexican. So yeah. like the, the contrast between like that dark of yeah. like a Mexican and that light of the potentially chameleon was like, and both of them have just such fine scales that it's very like glossy in appearance mm -hmm. compared to like a vermilion. So it was really interesting coming up with those back to back. It just felt like I was in an alien world of oh, yeah, yeah. But yeah, so... Okay, I'll take a, I'll take a chameleon on that I one. I think you should. And then um, there was one more. Uh, oh, I don't know if you'll know this, but um, I caught this. Um, it's just going to be a never-ending um, uh, search for this one. But it was I caught this in um, Puerto Vallarta, and it looks so much like a white croaker. But um, it's I think the nose is a little bit a little bit different. Um, I've tried to figure it out if it's like a slender croaker or um, 
There's a couple others that. Well, it's a croaker. Yeah, oh, it croaked. So um, <laughs> there is a website run by Ross Robertson. Is it Mexfish? It's called no. Okay. This is called something like Inshore Fishes of the Eastern Tropical Pacific. Okay. And it'll be in there. Ross has every goddamn fish in the Gulf of California in Perfect. there. Perfect. Um, particularly all of the shallow shallower safe from 600 feet and shallower yeah he'll have it and i think he i think he has all the croakers it's definitely a croaker yeah but it's almost certainly not you never say never but i don't think it's a white croaker yeah no it was not i mean built like one yeah no slimmer i mean like when it first popped up i've uh in all my years of um surf fishing i've i still haven't gotten a corbina and really? so yeah and so you're in good I, company. Okay. Well, I'm glad. Uh, <laughs> Those are noxious. Trying to catch a, a corbina. Oh my god! Yeah. In heaven. I mean, I guess I've I've been off the surf fishing game for a little bit since I got the boat. I really haven't cared that much. But like, it's like I spent like a good like five years fishing like every weekend with my dad, and he caught like three, and I never got one. Huh. And we were in Ventura County on steeper beaches, so I get that they wouldn't show up that often, but. Uh, yeah, it was. That I was. Yeah, I mean, I think I've caught, and I did, um, like I say, almost nothing but fish when I was a kid. Yeah, I've caught like three total. Yeah, and there, in no case, did I walk down the beach and go like, I'm catching myself a corbina. Yeah, I was fishing for barred perch. Yeah, and you catch a corbina. Yeah, yeah. Uh, w one thing is, a lot of the feeding takes place in like eight inches of water. Yeah, right. You see and, them, and they see you. So. Yeah, and. And a lot of times people cast, they're not even aware they're there. Yeah. They cast over them. And uh, the guys that impress me are the guys that essentially fly fish for them. I want to do that. I'm, I, I'm set up for it. So. I, holy moly. Good for, <laughs> good for you guys. I mean, no, it's like, fabulous. Like the, the lengths that I'm ready to go for them, but I just haven't woken up early in the morning to do it. It's just like, just wear like a blue shirt with the khaki pants to blend in with yeah, your environment. Sure. Stand up on the bank and like look down from yeah. like, like, you know, like 20 yards away, like cast onto dry sand right. and like let the water come up and All have them that. follow it's it. It's like fishing. I it's, guess it's like fishing for bonefish. Yeah. Except harder, I think. <laughs> it might be. I mean, yeah, it definitely it might be. I think be. it is. I think it is. I mean, the, the, the environment's tougher for sure. My wife Janie but. and I were walking down East Beach here a couple years ago and water was super clear. Yeah. And there was only medium-sized waves. And we could see the Corbina swimming along yeah. the... The front of the waves. Yeah. I mean, that's how shallow they were. Yeah. Just before it crashed. Oh yeah. No, I, I it see was, them. It was I like see amazing. Their backs all the time. I see like, like I've had over in um, Channel Islands Harbor. There's a little like, like still behind the break wall outside of the harbor. There's a little nook. I don't know what you call that geographically, but uh, it's just this little pooled area. And like I would go there. Like, my dad was taking a community college class, and so he would down in Oxnard College. So he would drop me off there for a couple hours. Well. He went to college and like uh, I would just like stare at these like two foot like plus Corbina, just sure. like dozens of them. And they're like like in maybe they're in four feet of water, but like super clear, tossing everything at them. Can't do shit. You know, that's what they no, are. No, no. I mean, it's like historically bluefin tuna. Yeah. If you can see them. Yeah. They, you're not going to catch them. Yeah. And I don't know why. No one knows why that is, but. Among the tunas, bluefins are renowned about being hook shy. Yeah. 
and you, you go like, well, what the fuck? I mean, they're just fucking fish. Yeah. But uh, it's amazing. The only bluefins I've ever caught, I was fishing for albacore. Yeah. And you catch a bluefin, you go like, oh, look, it's a bluefin. Yeah. Uh, th- there's just some species of fish that you're going like, I just don't understand what's yeah. going on. No, the right now they're. Uh, uh, I don't know if they're still happening, but we, we've been on a pretty good run down out of like South Orange County where um, I got uh, I got my first one. It was like maybe 80, 100 pounds out of, out of my boat, um, uh, about five miles off of Oceanside. And they've been there for several days. And now, as far as I know, they're still inside the 14 over there. So like right out front of Newport and stuff like you just, you know, wait on it or troll around like there. There's a good massive fish there from like 50 to 150 pounds. And uh People have been uh, lately. People have been able to get up on the foamers, uh, but mm-hmm. it's, uh, but yeah, for the past like year or like for the rest of the year, it's been very difficult. But they've been making themselves a little bit easier right now. But it's they're, they're bluefin being bluefin. That's they are, and I remember the first bluefin I ever saw that yeah. in the water. I uh, it, I think I was probably sixteen. I you could in the Santa Monica Pier you could rent a skiff. And I think it actually had a motor if you wanted to pay more. But I yeah. rode, uh, you know, there's a breakwater. Yeah. The remnants of breakwater. Is that like just north of uh, Santa Monica uh, Pier? Just outside of the Santa Monica Pier. Now, yeah. I'm oh, not even right. sure a rock breaks, but you can see whitewater. Yeah. But it used to be an official breakwater. Yeah. And uh, there was Benita just on the outside of it. So I rode out there and I was fishing for Benita. And the school of very, I mean, they were only 20-pound bluefins. They... They just charged through there and just left. And I almost soiled my clothing. Yeah. I was like, oh, my God. And then they were gone. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah. It was it was trippy. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so we were talking about the 14-mile the uh, Lasso Inn. Yeah. So, oh, that's right. Uh, yeah. So uh, I've been not every place in a submarine in Southern California by, by any means. Yeah. But I've been to most of the major features and uh, Lost One was interesting because there's not the most of the rock. There's a little bit of rock right at the top. Yeah. And then there's a lot of sand. And then most of the rock, as you probably know, is on the southeast side yeah. deep. And it's these big, chunky, blocky. It looks, it looks like it all tumbled down from up above because mm-hmm. it's not like it's exposed bedrock or anything it's it, it and maybe it's granitic or something but it's like big chunky things yeah and most of the rockfish are hiding in the caves and crevices there it's really quite different than a lot of the other uh features in southern california yeah i i would that sounds pretty interesting the, it was cool yeah so, 60 mile is interesting well they're all interesting yeah Cortez, Tanner, all of those things are interesting. 60 Mile was interesting. We went out there and uh, there was a gillnet that had broken free, I guess, and was laying on the bottom. Yeah. And it wasn't catching anything. It yeah. wasn't um, fishing anymore. And the fish were just ignoring it. It was just like more structure. and uh, But it was like... It, I actually have a, a mixed feeling about lost fishing gear yeah because if it's fishing still well that's bad yeah so like a lost crab pot or a lost gill net or whatever but at some point a lot of this gear it's not fishing anymore yeah 
and then it becomes habitat for animals. Yeah, that's what I would think, yeah. And so th there's like on the, there's a wreck off of Redondo with the Avalon. I'm not sure about that there's one. There's a wreck uh, that has a Persane on it. Uh -huh. And the Persane is not fishing anymore, but it's covered in crustaceans, in yeah. little uh, amphipods and copods. And you've got black perch, they're eating them. And, and yet you have people who are going like, oh, well, we got to remove that because right. it's lost gear. I'm going like, well, how about all those animals? Right. Like you wind up killing, well. Clearing a reef, if you, essentially. Yeah, I mean, yeah. It's basically you're, you're hauling a reef and putting it on your boat. And like, is that really the right thing to do? Right. And uh, that's not a scientific question. That's right. a philosophical question. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Now that's uh, uh, I would imagine that like uh, an out of commission net. I, I I would imagine that there's a lot more of those around, but I um, maybe not. But not here. Yeah. Um, where there is are places like uh, Puget Sound, where uh, there's lost drift gillnets. People drift gillnet for um, or even set gillnet for salmon. They get lost, and an awful lot of crab pots that get lost. Yeah. And unless you set up the crab pots so that they spring open after a while, they do ghost fish. Yeah. And that's not, yeah. a, that's a bad thing. That is. So um, you mentioned in that other podcast that you, we have still been finding, or you have still been finding some new species of rockfish uh, in the relatively recent past. Like people will send uh -huh. in pictures and uh, they're like, oh, congrats. That's like, that's new. Is there. Um, are, are, yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I've never described. Uh, a new species. Sure. People uh, recently have. There is known to be a new species out there that no one has officially described. Yeah. It's another one that looks like another species. So yeah. you got to catch a, a number of them so you can go like, oh, well, the difference is not just genetic, but as you pointed out, oh, it has more... Uh, dorsal, not dorsal spines, but dorsal rays or pectoral yeah, yeah. rays or something like that. So there's at least one new species out there. And then I'm trying to think if anyone, the last time anyone found a species that was new to California. You know, yeah. Maybe it was found off Oregon uh, or maybe it was off Alaska and all of a sudden it shows up. It's been a while. Yeah. The, the species I'm interested in is one that lives off central Baja California and no place else and that one you can imagine as you get these years like of El Nino's yeah you can imagine larvae being yeah. carried into Southern California well, do you know what's uh what's that species is a name uh, rockfish I don't or? know if it I mean I know the Latin name is Sebastes notius n-o-t-i-u-s and it was described from Guadalupe Island, Isla, uh -huh. Isla Guadalupe. And I think it's been found in that vicinity. Yeah. And unfortunately, it looks like, kind of like a rosy or a rose thorn. It's one of those species that has five yeah. blotches. And it may be here and people yeah. going like, oh, look, it's a fucking rosy. It's not very big. I mean, there's like half a dozen species that look like that. Oh, it's, yeah. That's tough. That's, yeah, it's, that's one of the tough ones. It's really hard. So yeah. I don't know. Maybe it's here and we've never seen it, recognized it. Yeah. 
No, I've, I've really had to start taking pictures of just every single rockfish yeah. I catch and just double checking all the finlets and stuff. Because, right. like, I have found, like, pro I've, there, I've, I've added, like, three or so new species this year to my to my list that's just like like i'm pretty sure i caught this before there's no reason i wouldn't have like statistically mm -hmm. but like i just like paid attention now like a speckled sand dab or a, oh yeah things like that where it's just like okay gotcha so i'm uh, trying to think of the guy well the the guy that i actually got a lot of information from do you know john snow uh i can't i don't think so Years ago, he emailed me, and uh, he was fishing in the Gulf of California. His goal was to catch every single species in the Gulf of California. You know what? I might have read about him. And he went about it very methodically. Yeah. And we started emailing back and forth because he was catching things that almost no one had ever caught before. Yeah. Maybe once before. And I'm going like, well, this is cool, man. Yeah. And so I said, well, you should use like sabiki rigs because he was going out on pongas. And, if it's the guy that know, I read about, it, he, he ended up doing that? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And then he eventually wound up going around the corner to Todos Santos, which yeah. is just in the Pacific side. Yeah. And he started paying the commercial guys to bring in weird fish. Yeah. Because he really got into it. And then he started donating specimens to the uh, fish collection at Scripps. And so, I mean, he became like an ace collector of yeah. these odds and ends. And uh, I co-authored a paper that listed all the species ever caught between uh, the Beaufort Sea in northern Alaska and Cabo San Lucas. Yeah. And he was the source of a ton of stuff yeah. where n no one had ever paid attention to that stuff before. So... He has had the same kind of, I'm catching every species. And then there's another guy who uh, he has the same name, Steve. Um, Wozniak or Yeah, Wozniak. Yeah. Same as yeah, the, he, he got the guy over, who, who helped co-invent. Yeah, uh, he got over a thousand a uh, while ago. Yeah. So yeah. he sends me photographs. And then recently there's a couple other guys in Southern yeah, there's, California. There's uh, uh, Ben Cantrell. He just moved... Uh, to like uh he went to jacksonville or something like that florida and then he moved to somewhere else i think he's up in new england now but he's over a thousand he's been fishing since he, he's only been fishing for like 10 years and he just like like exploded on it yeah and well then, if you if you if you yeah do it thoughtfully yeah as you as you and you have the money to travel a little bit and, but, well i mean it takes all of that yeah but uh if you don't limit yourself to you know number one hooks in an anchovy yeah. If if you're using uh, sabikis, yeah. whatever number tens and yeah, little bits squid of squid tentacles and yeah, 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 and you're fishing in 800 feet of water. Well, I um, mean, it, it helps anyway. Yeah. No, I was uh, I was gonna ask if there's a uh, like, it was so interesting to just catch like, just have a day of only new species in Southern California sure. a couple months ago, and I was I was thinking there must be like. There's probably some some other opportunities to do that still, especially with micro fishing, like using uh -huh. those number ten hooks or smaller. I have a number twenty four or thirty oh, uh, midge hooks that cool. I caught a mosquito uh, mosquito fish sure. uh, on on one. That was uh, that's my my greatest achievement. I feel like absolutely, but, but, that, but finding stuff great. like that and just having like like if there's just any other like little reefs that like aren't like I notice a lot of. A lot of them from, um, uh, I guess from like 
here down to at least Huntington Beach, a lot of these spots, like uh, larger reefs, are just loaded with blacksmith, you know, uh-huh. and it's it's hard to get past those for uh, when you're micro fishing, like oh, yeah. at depth. So yeah. like I was I was trying to do that. I don't know a little bit ago. I was like catching on the sabiki. I was catching like whitefish, black blacksmith, couple senoritas, like, yeah. and I'm like, there must. Where's the fucking goby? Like, I know there's a goby somewhere well, around here and shit a, like that. That's an interesting question. So the gobies, the goby, sure. you're likely to catch. I should ask you. So have you caught? I don't think I've caught a goby yet. Wow. They changed the. So the Latin name is Rhinogobia nicolzi. Is it the black spot? The black spot goby. Okay. So it's tan, and the dorsal fin has a big black spot, and they have big black eyes. Yeah. And they're they're common. Yeah. They're actually territorial. Yeah. And so um, we've seen them all the way from maybe 10 feet of water. Actually, they live down to like 180, 200 feet. And the ones that are in really deep water are lemon yellow. Same species, hmm. but a different color. But anyway, you... The problem you face, though, is all the competition for yes. the bait. Yeah. So, I don't know how you. Yeah, you know, I mean, like, how do you fend off the white? Fish? Yeah, I've caught I've caught a couple weird like motley crew fish like uh, while just like a fantail sole or a sarcastic uh-huh. fringe head. I, oh, caught, yeah. I actually caught off a refugio, and I was just drifting squid, and I was in a kayak, and it immediately came off the hook. And like into my lap, and you know, just trying to bite you, and trying to bite at my I balls. Love, I it's love just them. Right there, they my are favorite fish. One of my favorite fish for sure. It they'll is bite so your cool. Ass. You turn around, they'll bite your ass. Man. <laughs> so cool. I've been bitten, and on the thumb, and yeah, it's really hard to get them off. And really you're bleeding, and uh, yeah, they they have fairly large teeth and really strong jaws. The, yeah, the males have that humongous jaw. Yeah, yeah, and um. They're in. They, they have so many interesting habits. If you go, this may not be true anymore. But forty years ago, if you dove uh, in front of the Redondo Pier, uh, the canyon comes up right there, right. and uh, it, it's like ninety feet of water just off the pier. Yeah, like a hundred feet off, and uh, the bottom was covered in Coke bottles and beer cans, but mainly bottles. And many of them had a sarcastic fringe one <laughs> yeah. in it. It was like their nest. That's, yeah. that's where they were living. And they were, they would go up to a diver. They try to bite the diver. Yeah. The diver is like a billion times bigger, yeah. right? Doesn't matter, man. They go right after you. I'm, I'm going like, I, I appreciate that. That's, yeah. that's really cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, I had somebody email me last week and basically saying what you're saying. I've run out of rockfish in southern california to catch and he's going like haven't caught a china haven't got a quillback and i haven't got a black i'm missing those as well and the reality is yes there's probably one of those someplace in southern california probably san miguel or santa rosa yeah but if you really want to catch them if you really want to catch them you go to oregon yeah and launch your boat at depot bay and there's a reef redfish rocks just below and you catch all three yeah in an hour yeah if you, if you know the wind lets up right but uh yeah you reach a point of diminishing returns yeah it's just like it's going to be really rare yeah no i'm i'm up to uh 129 right now and uh i still see the ones that like and i spent the last couple of years really focusing up on trying to like 
knock knock off a thresher and a bluefin and uh-huh. those take those were very time consuming compared to others like i'm sure i could catch like certain other fish like you know in, in one go like um even if i just went freshwater up to like big bear i know that like still haven't got a green green sunfish and a couple types of sculpin are in there and things like that so but, do you have like a calico uh, perch uh I might. Or a red tail. I, th- I think I got a calico perch out of uh, out of Ventura. I got a red tail perch out of Humboldt when I was. Uh, yeah, that would be the place to get them. Yeah, that was a uh, that was a good one. The, the calico perch is a really interesting one. I still haven't got a shiner perch. That's uh, really. Yeah, shiner perch, Seriously? white perch. I'm I'm pretty sure I've never got one, or if well, I haven't documented well, you know. it correctly. I mean, so when I was a kid, if it wasn't for shiner perch and tomcod, little kids would catch nothing. I mean, they yeah. were so abundant. Yeah. Uh, they're far more abundant in the summertime yeah. around piers. If yeah. you think about piers, they're far more abundant in the summer around piers. In the winter, winter they actually go deep. I've seen them in 300 feet of water, schools yeah. of them, 300 yeah. feet of water. Uh, but in the fall, yeah. So shiner perch. Well, that's doable. Yeah, should be doable. You know what? I, what I got before a shiner perch was a salama. How, oh, how yeah. common are those? Uh, they're really like, common really once c- you get from about. Uh, Seal Beach to Southern Baja, California. Okay. Salimas are super common. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, I got one in Newport Bay. Yeah. So okay. I mean, that's was... that's about as far north as you can predictably see them or catch yeah. them. Yeah. And then, uh, how about sargos? Yeah, I got sargos. Sargos. Actually, uh, out of Lake Summerland, I think. Okay. Um, and then, um, uh, you know, what's what's interesting is those. Uh, Short fin corvina. Do you you didn't put those in the book, did you? No, they're too rare. Too rare. I mean, short they're... fins. Uh, the furthest north you normally get them is San Diego Bay. Right, Mission Bay. Uh, they're okay. Uh, but uh, yeah, there's. I was seeing a lot of topwater action in uh in Anaheim Bay. Um, earlier this week, or a buddy told, was telling me about it. He's like, oh, these like trout looking things, silvery trout. Mm. I was like, hmm. So I went out there and I saw the surface action, threw a crankbait at it, and I got a juvenile white sea bass. So let's see. Uh, I would have suspected that, yeah, as opposed to Corvina. yeah. I was like, to me, it's like I don't see why a short fin corvina wouldn't come up to Huntington if they're in Mission Bay. Like, it's pretty similar temperature. Well, well they have um, to get there. Yeah, and they're limited in California. Well, if you go to uh, Bahia Magdalena, for instance, yeah, uh, they're all over there, but they're in the mangroves. Yeah, and. If you go on the outer coast, they're essentially absent. They don't right. like turbulence. Right. So if you're in Mission Bay, oh, this is nice. Yeah. A little, a little cold, but it's okay. Yeah. Uh, you're not. If you're a short fin, it, it would be unusual to go like I'm going to leave this really nice spot. Yeah. And go further north where it's even colder. Yeah. So then they would have had to be carried by larvae. Yeah. Possible. Yeah. But it becomes more and more unusual. Yeah. It's like bonefish. Well, they've caught bonefish in Marina del Rey. I caught them. Uh, saw one out of um, Channel Islands Harbor, actually. So yeah, it happens. Yeah, it happens. Yeah. By the way, how do you know it's a bonefish and not a mullet? Oh, I saw a picture of it. It's okay. very, very clear. You know, the snout. So okay. yeah, because mullets are now abundant. Oh yeah. Uh, this far, in fact. It may they may actually be abundant as far north now as like Morro Bay. Uh-huh. It's like they have marched north. Yeah. Um, that we have 
a school of them in uh, in Santa Barbara Harbor. Yeah. When the water's clear, you can see them schmuffing yeah. around in the mud there. Yeah. No, that's They're that's cool. another one uh, like on, on the short list. I, I I'm gonna try and get one before the end of the summer. That's that's tricky. It's uh I heard uh they eat diatoms. Little strips of um, uh, banana peel. Sure. For that. I mean, why not? <laughs> why not? I know. I mean, fine. If it works, see what it happens. works. Yeah, yeah. We'll see I what mean, happens. Then doesn't it cost you whatever a banana costs. Yeah, so. and, the, and the cost of the luck of bringing the banana on the boat. Yeah. But, um, yeah. Good luck. <laughs> so uh, yeah, I was I, I was curious on your take of um, I don't know if this is uh, apocalyptic or uh, uh, or overly optimistic as a fisherman, but like as global warming continues and like of course certain like tropical uh fish like have been seen up, up this way that shouldn't be like uh-huh. i've i've seen like creval jacks i've uh-huh. i've right. seen things like that um but of course they're not common but is there like a chance that or what do you have any idea of what it would take if like say how point conception seems to be where there's a current break of like that's where a lot of fish stop you know with uh Sort of. Like, and then Magdalena Bay is another spot yes. where a lot of fish that's stop. A, that's a like, much more abrupt one. Yeah. Yes. So I, I'm, I'm wondering if, like, if it's possible for, like, ocean currents or ocean temperatures or, like, things like that to alter enough that, like, that, that abrupt stop in Magdalena Bay uh-huh. would suddenly be, like, not the abrupt stop. And it would, like, open the floodgates of, of, uh, uh. of roosters coming up to... to they caught a rooster fish in California. Really? Uh, or maybe a, was it, it was off San Onofre. I, I don't remember if it wound okay. up dead there or if they caught gotcha. it. Gotcha. Uh, that's the one record, I think, for rooster fish. And that was just you yeah. know, a one-off. So you've asked a question that is not possible to answer. Sure. Uh, there's no question that if currents change, then then fish populations will change. Yeah. The, the only question, or a question then is, well, what, it, what change are we talking about? Yeah. So uh, uh, you, you just don't know. I mean, global warming is a really complex phenomenon. Right. And uh, it's, it's more than just, oh, the ocean's going to get two degrees warmer. Right. Because a lot of other things occur at the same time. Uh, for instance... Uh, all this CO2 we're pumping into the atmosphere, a lot of it gets absorbed by the ocean. Mm-hmm. And that makes the ocean more acidic. And that's going to make a huge change, maybe not for the better, in what lives in the ocean. Mm-hmm. Uh, all of a sudden, the plankton, all, some plankton survive and some don't. Um, uh, animals with shells, like oysters and mussels and so forth, uh, will find that they're unable to make shells. And so, well, the populations of those things are going to crash. And uh, corals populations those things are going to crash have crashed so it's really hard if you ask yeah. a simpler question uh, if you start getting stronger northward flowing current what's going to happen in southern california mm-hmm. then a simplistic answer is you're going to get more tropical fish yeah and maybe that's what we're seeing with well there's awful lot of dorado here sure yeah and uh if you go back in time, historic white people time, which starts around 1850, uh, there was only like 
two year, maybe one year, when there was a lot of Dorado, and that yeah. was 1933, which was an El Nino year. Yeah. Okay. So uh, we're already seeing, wow, getting a lot of Dorado, and it's not even El Nino. And wow, there, look, trigger fish are coming up, and uh, it's not even El Nino. I mean, you're yeah. getting a couple years ago, there was all these seahorses that all of a sudden, like, there's seahorses everywhere. Yeah. People are going like seahorse, and then the following year, they're all gone. Um, so we're getting maybe more of these kind of tropical influences coming yeah. up. So, but but the question of global warming, uh, I, I I tend to fall on the no one's going to be happy, yeah, with global warming. Yeah, uh, you, you mentioned yeah. before or in a, in the previous podcast um, how there are like these dead dead benthic zones that are like constantly growing in i think you were mentioning like the pacific northwest where like areas oh, yeah, are yeah, becoming yeah. increasingly less or decreasingly livable yeah you're getting uh anoxic that is lack of oxygen areas the 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 one that was has been the most studied is at the mouth of the mississippi where so much fertilizer comes down from uh uh all the farms right. that line the Mississippi comes down, all the plankton eat it, the plankton all die, and they suck up all the oxygen. Yeah. So you get these huge dead zones. Well, uh, another dead zone that occurs every year is off of Oregon uh, in 500 feet of water, 400 feet, and it tends to get shallower over time. When you say uh, every year, does it like come and go yeah. seasonally? Yeah, okay. it is. But... What seems to be happening is there's a tendency every year, not I shouldn't say every year, over time, it, it's getting shallower. And then it retracts. Yeah. But in the area where uh, it is, you find that like crabs are going like, I can't breathe. Mm. And then they die. Yeah. And it tends to, I'm not sure it actually kills fish because fish have fins mm. and they can swim around. But uh, it certainly changes where fish live uh, during the period where it lives. And we have the same thing off um, California, uh, where in deep water, we're starting to get deep, unoxygenated water going shallower and shallower. There was a study off uh, British Columbia, mm -hmm. where on some of these reefs, deep reefs, the fish have moved away. They, they actually leave, and they don't come back because mm -hmm. these reefs are permanently deoxygenated mm -hmm. so yeah more stuff that uh, uh it's the reason that i i live on uh on gummies and dark chocolate <laughs> i'm just going like fuck this man uh i mean this is like existential dread yeah going on yeah i get it i, I live in in that my wife can read about all this stuff it's amazing the difference of personalities and it's she can watch films about the holocaust and then she's going like hey, what's for dinner and i'm going like I just want to slip my wrists here. Yeah. And so different people respond. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I get that. You know, I get that thing. well. I, uh, uh, I don't know. I, I heard something about a couple of years ago. I've come back to it recently, but I, I heard a couple, couple of years ago how like there's potentially ancient civilizations before like Babylon and things like that. Yeah. But there was, and there's like a decent geological record of, of like a flood that happened 12,000 years ago, uh -huh. potentially from either like solar flares or meteors that like, um, that caused like 
like a massive ice melt like in the course of like 24 hours or something where there was like 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 dozens of feet if not hundreds of feet of water like rolling through like the plains of like the uh the u.s prairies and Uh like and through russia and things like that and it like literally wiped like civilizations clean where there was like where there was more advanced civilizations than maybe we'd previously thought there's like absolutely nothing because they either sank into the sea a little just enough into the tidal structure in this tidal areas to like to like be eliminated over the course of a few hundred years or whatever so there's just no sign of that and like it it made me go like Mm. i stopped (laughs) i watched that while smoking weed and i had to stop smoking weed for a couple years because i was like like wow like we're such a fragile like um we ju- we live such a fragile existence. Well, th- that part is true. If it was me, yeah. I would have kept smoking weed and not read that shit. Because, <laughs> I mean, I'm not saying, I am not here to say this is categorically untrue. Yeah, yeah. I But I, what I'm saying is, there's that saying, something like, extraordinary hypotheses require extraordinary, extraordinary data. Evidence. Yeah. And th- it, it doesn't exist. I mean, from... Now I'm, I'll take the, take this with a grain of salt because I, I heard it through Joe Rogan and we we, we have a we why have an would you on listen that. to Joe Rogan? <laughs> He's a fucking fascist. Why would any human being who is not themselves unless you are a fascist that's fine. Yeah. If you're a fascist, you 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 should listen to Joe Rogan. Yeah. But if you're not, yeah, I actually I'm, I guess I'm asking why would you listen to him? So uh, I. I think I originally was just looking for some like interviews on um, on UFO stuff. Uh, okay. And so like I got I found some some of his interviews on that. I found some of his interviews on like health and stuff. And I'm like, uh-huh. okay, these are interesting ideas. And then uh, yeah, I agree. I completely agree that his politics are like 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 you say you're liberal, but you are not saying liberal things. Like this yes. is this is like like what the hell are you talking about, dude? Right. And like. So I understand that uh, I was uh, so I was listening, I guess, less to Joe Rogan. I was listening more to uh, these uh, uh, geologists, journalists uh-huh. that like that proposed this theory, uh, Graham Hancock and this other guy, I forget his name. OK, but uh, they've they have proposed that, like, if you look at like the geological um, the geology of certain areas, like there's an area in, in like Oregon where there's like pretty clearly like. A large scale like water movement water erosion uh-huh. that would like uh that would in any other instance people would say yeah that's like that's water erosion but since it's so enormous in scale they go no it can't be water erosion because it's that big and so it can't be like uh it couldn't be water because water doesn't there's not enough water to do that and so mm-hmm. like the idea was that like there was so much instant glacier melting from like I suppose Canada and the Arctic that came down across the plains and like and washed things off and like moved like like granite boulders that had to have been frozen at some point and had to the only way they could have traveled is if they were like perhaps stuck in ice and then were okay. taken with the ice as they melted All and right. so they were placed in certain spots in in the plains where there is no geological record okay. of granite. Why couldn't so, why couldn't this is unfair to you. Sure. Why couldn't these boulders have been very slowly pushed along by glaciers? Yeah. And then the glaciers very slowly retreat. Yeah. And they leave the boulder. Now, I, I think most people, most people agree that 
the very large lake that was situated all the way from Montana into Oregon, uh, it, it did empty very quickly. Yeah. My son lives uh, in eastern Montana, and uh, you can, in a, in a uh, what's called the Camas Prairie, a small prairie, and uh, you can look up in the hillsides and you can see uh, where water flowed right yeah. really fast and there's almost no topsoil there still yeah and the hypothesis is that whatever ten thousand years ago yeah uh the the dam that had been built up someplace it gave way and all this water went kaplooey that seems reasonable yeah so so i'm not saying it it didn't happen i just i don't know i mean my cousin is a a big believer in ufos sure and which is fine yeah and and she's always waiting, uh, like uh, some bozo testified before Congress a couple weeks ago. Yeah. And, and uh, no, I've, I have never seen these bodies and I have never seen these strange craft, but I've been told that the government has, you know, blah, blah, blah. Right, right, right. Well, until someone ponies, I mean, historically, the fucking federal government can't keep a secret to save their souls yeah and here's this massive secret that they've managed to to say uh, anyway uh, bless her heart and uh, i actually hope she's right i hope that that uh people are being sucked up by space aliens and then probes are being put up their assholes yeah i hope that's all true yeah though why an alien would come all the way from zorax 5 yeah to um shove an a probe up our assholes i don't know but i'm not an alien so it's fine um but, but I, people are making these proposals and then nothing happens sure and as a scientist if i were to do that yeah then it's like my credibility would just go to hell yeah and ultimately a scientist that's all a scientist has yeah is their credibility yeah right so and it's like super important to be conservative and cautious and to only go as far as the data allows you to go. And right. you can hypothesize beyond that, but you, you can't go like, I am sure right. that this is true because unless you have the data, then you're not really yeah. sure. Anyway, that's my diatribe. Okay. I'm sure Joe Rogan is a lovely person and uh, is good to his dogs and, and <laughs> yeah. uh, pets his children. Just when I see something about UFOs, uh, I perk okay. up. So I was gonna ask. <laughs> so I have your opinion on the UFOs. I, that was well, a, that was a little bit of a, a category of, for yes. me because. Yeah. Uh, uh, so I've seen I've seen one, or I guess it was two in one day. Uh -huh. And so I was just stargazing. I was looking at uh, satellites up over Thousand Oaks, yeah. and I spotted one. I started watching it, and it speeds up, and I'm like. Well, you know what is that and then it makes a u-turn in uh -huh. just like a couple seconds in like a way that just planes don't do okay. and or drones or anything and then one another one appears out, out of the black and follows it they make uh, a u-turn together and then blast off into light speed and disappear okay and so it's just like one of that moment was like okay like that is that was a thing that uh was a thing that like I yeah I don't know what that was like it could have been manned it could have been unmanned it could have been the U S and they don't they aren't telling us anything it could have been aliens and nobody knows about it I've heard enough similar stories about mm -hmm. it 
and then I've heard some other things about like it's not Area Fifty One, but uh, a similar uh, Nevada uh, secret space thing okay. where uh, somebody came out uh, who was trying to reverse engineer some craft and uh, uh, said that like they would fly in that sort of ability, like that would seem to defy gravity because they have an I know I'm getting into the sticks here, but no, it's okay. uh, but like it's it puts out an anti-gravity uh, field that it can fall into, so uh, it it doesn't have to defy the gravity like that we're aware of because it's like creating its own gravity vacuum. So, who built this anti-gravity thing? So it the would aliens. It would be aliens. Yeah. Okay. So, and so this guy was saying that he or he was part of a team yeah. that was trying to figure out how to devise an anti-gravity device. Yeah. So they had it in front okay. of them. And they had they, it in front of them. They had it in front of and them at, at, this, at this base. They got it to work. And they couldn't figure out what it was made of and how its simple design was, like, not human. If you have an anti-gravity device, yeah. let's say you have it on, on that chair yeah. there. How do you know that it works? Because they tried to touch it and it would force them away like a magnet. That's what they said. So like, like why is that anti gravity? Why isn't that antibody or anti something else? That's a if uh, it's anti gravity. Yeah. yeah. Wouldn't it lift off the surface? I think uh, they. Now I don't have all the no. All, it's all unfair the to you again. Yes, yes, yes. But uh, I know that there was something about um, there were like directional um, uh. things to it, uh, as far as I understood, uh, where it could it could point in certain directions in order uh. to push this this anti gravity so, forward. According to this gentleman, yes, sir. They, he probably worked for the government mm -hmm, at one point, and they had this machine. And apparently they couldn't reverse engineer it, or they did, and it's another secret. And we're spending humongous amounts of money sending rockets up right. when we could attach an anti-gravity machine to yeah. them and like that. So I think so that, for that some reason were that would be why they would want to reverse engineer it and their inability to have done so. As like this guy was unable to uh, reverse engineer it. And that was in like the early 90s or something. So it sounds like it, according to him and according to other like potential sources, allegedly, blah, blah, blah. They, uh, you know, it, it's probably a project that they pick up and put down. Like, like, do we have the resources to understand this yet? Nope. All right. Let's put it away. So um, that's, a, that's a whole thing. Is it possible these people are lying? I suppose it's possible. But it sounds like, say like this guy, I forget his name. Uh, other people might be shouting at the at the at their iPhone as I say this on Spotify, but um, he uh, his the in, some other information uh, he's been able to like corroborate like um, like certain technologies that like say like the the way they entered the lab was like some kind of like uh, it would read your hand uh -huh. and uh, uh, and then it would say like oh this is the correct identity of John Smith yeah and. Uh, and like that was not available information. It was all like you know specific to this place or whatever. And then like ten or fifteen or twenty years later, like that information got out, and like people were saying he was lying about that. And then there was a couple other things 
to that degree where it's like, okay, this piece of the, the puzzle was, has been corroborated. Um, so, you know, um, what do I know? Uh, it's, it's interesting. And the reason I go down the rabbit holes because I've, I've seen it and it's just like, I'm interested in the updates. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, to, uh, to that effect, I had one event yeah. that uh, is inexplicable. Yeah. So I went to, when I was in college, I went uh, to a summer, I had a, there was a summer program here, and there was a woman in the class that uh, uh, we were friendly, and she lived in the Midwest, as I remember. And she goes back to the Midwest, mm. and I, about a year later, I have a dream about her. I'd never dreamt before about her, and I've never dreamt since. I dream about her, and that day, I wake up, and whatever, 10 o'clock in the morning, she calls me, hmm. and she's a deckhand on a research vessel, and it's tied up in Santa Barbara, and she says, hey, why don't you come over, we'll say hello. And I did, and I mean, that's the whole story. Yeah. So what are the chances that the one day I dream about her, that day she calls me? I've had that happen multiple times. So, yeah. so okay. I mean, I, I mean, it's and, and I don't like, but but it is inexplicable. It is yeah, very strange. And I mean, they're just now. Do I extrapolate to like? Well, we all have psionic powers, and right. I'm going to spend my time trying to uh, levitate uh, that chair there. Right. Uh, no, yeah. I I don't, and, and I'll, I I I will grant it's inexplicable. And right, uh, there are a lot of things that are inexplicable. Yeah, uh, lightning was inexplicable to ancient peoples yeah i mean they had hypotheses yeah but it ultimately was inexplicable and now we have a better idea so yeah. I, i'm not saying that this dude did not work on an anti-gravity device that was apparently created by aliens <laughs> I, i'm going like well i better see some more evidence than this dude just talking about yeah it. i get that i mean there's uh yeah, each generation has its own set of resources and limitations and yeah. et cetera. And like it's it's not the universe's uh, duty to make any fucking sense to us. So No, there's... no. In fact, I think it's the universe's duty to muddle us. A yeah. good one. Yeah. up the ufo thing or i guess we you brought it up naturally but uh they they see them so often in um during uh naval uh procedures out of san diego uh -huh. and so uh at least at one point maybe they still see them but uh it was so often seen like out there i would assume that would be like still on like the continental shelf but in that in that zone of like 60 mile bank to cortez to all those okay. kinds of things yeah so i couldn't help but think when they they've said that um they chase them around. They do unreal things, and then uh, they can disappear underwater. Like they'll just drop into the water and just like be gone. And so okay. they're like trans matter, or whatever. Like, uh, and so I like an interesting idea is how they're uh, 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 they could have like an underwater base, which sounds insane or whatever. You know, it's a little bit speculative, we'll say. And <laughs> so, yes, but like like knowing Pretty the oceanography deep. is like well, this is like. A really like I really like SoCal just because of the oceanography like and like yeah. just how rich like the underwater mountain range sure. is it's like you know they could they could have a spot like there's a lot of spots in there potentially like I don't know if if there's a is one I mean if, if you if you have that technology let's yeah. imagine 
because you came from Xerox 5. Yeah. Why would you care what the oceanography is? Well, I mean, just, uh, yeah, I guess. But, like, just the oceanography could allow, like, if there's, like, underwater mountains, underwater caves that uh -huh. nobody would ever be able to get to, or, or at least these apes on the surface wouldn't be able to get to them anytime soon. Why don't you put yourself at the bottom of the Mariana Trench or something where I mean, they, only four people have ever gone? Right. I instead mean, of off Southern California where there are whatever, yeah. 12 million people. It doesn't sound like very good planning. Now, sure. the counter argument would be, well, you're thinking like a human. These are aliens. And why should aliens think like humans? Sure. So, I mean, I hate to, to do your arguing for you. But, I mean, that, that no, would be out. like any behavior of theirs should not be filtered through our lens. Right. Yeah. Because they're not us. Yeah. We think. And, Probably yeah. not us. Probably. We actually don't know. Yeah. Maybe they are. Another us. unknown unknown. They yeah. could be from the future. They could be. Sure. Yeah. So. I'd like to go back in time. Uh, where would if you go? You could go back. Where would you go? Uh, you know, I've had this conversation. It's it's tough because there's there are a lot of points where like I really don't want to be anywhere but here or the future because of the medicine and all those exactly. things. But if I could just stop and you know take the take the fucking um, neighborhood of the stars bus ride through through town at any point in okay. in uh, in the through the centuries, I think uh, honestly like 1850s seems really interesting. Um, here. Yeah, like uh, Fort Laramie. I mean, like, like I suppose, uh, like, like uh, oh, I don't know, some kind of, some kind of western, western town like or the west frontier. Frontier, yeah, frontier would be interesting. I guess colonial, like seventeen, like eighties, when like, when like we got the independence, and then they're like, you know, the the forefathers of of the nation are like really putting it together, like those. I know that like it's it's a whole thing that they're uh, um, you know they weren't woke enough for us at this point, but uh, but they're I, I think incredible like that. Renaissance men that some like some of them yeah. definitely were yeah yes. like like I, I read a book Jefferson. on yeah I read a book on Thomas Jefferson and it's like okay like I get it the slavery thing but like that guy did so much single handed yes. it's amazing. And like, yeah. I would love to like talk to him. I know he wouldn't give a shit about me. No, but like, like, no, he, he probably wouldn't. But if you said that you liked uh, the Asopus Spitzenberg apple, that was his favorite apple. Apparently, okay. if you started the conversation with apples, yeah, and worked from there, then it might be okay. Yeah. So that's. I always wonder what accent they have. People have tried. People claim they know what the accent of a Virginian was in 1775, for instance. Yeah. and But it would be interesting to see. Have, so have you heard the Baltimore accent? Yes. It, is, it sounds like like an old, like a early 1900s British accent, doesn't it? It's, yeah. It's got a really crazy like British twang to it. Yeah. And I also, I also love thinking about how the Southern accent, like it did come from from British, yes, and it turned into that, and that's interesting. And like, yeah. the California accent is really similar to Canadian, actually. So, the conventional wisdom is that the quote-unquote California accent is extremely close to dictionary yeah. pronunciation. Yeah, I mean, we have an accent. Yeah, but uh, but it's fairly close. I have a friend uh, who's from New Orleans. He sounds like he's from New York, mm. and, and he he told me one time he said that. 
there is a group of people in New Orleans who, yeah, that is the way they sound. Yeah, it's, it's interesting stuff. Yeah. So, well, I I hope you're right, and I hope that uh, someplace on the court, well, it can't be on the Cortez Bank because we've taken a sub there, unless the base is invisible, of course. Assuming the base is not invisible. I, I would think that it would be on like the back end or in the middle of the slope or something. I don't know. Sure. But what do I know? No, so, no, no. I mean, maybe yeah. you do know. It, yeah. Maybe it turns out you don't. I hope you're right because that would certainly be more interesting than yeah. everybody's so, lying to us. Yeah. So I don't know. But um, I mean, I guess it would be involved in the lying. But uh, at least the naval officers who saw it were were able to speak their truth. But uh, yeah. Yeah. But uh where, where would you go in the in the past? If oh, you could? Uh, th- there's a lot of caveats because uh, it, the first thing is, well, I'd like to go back as myself. I don't yes. want to be placed in the body of like yeah. a black slave, not as cool as one would imagine. Right. Even though apparently uh, if you're in Florida, you're going to be taught that you learned useful trades as a slave. <laughs> the major useful trade is if... Uh, your family is ripped away from you and you never see them again, how do you cope? See, that's, that's a useful thing. Yes, yes. So, okay. So, it would have to be me. And to your point, I don't want to go in a place where my teeth are going to fall out because yeah. there's no dental care. Or you get tuberculosis and it's a death sentence. Or you get pneumonia and everybody dies from it. Uh, I don't want to go there. So, Maybe it's like a one-off. You go for a day, right? Right. Yeah. right? So I'd kind of like to see uh, San Francisco in like 1854. Yeah. Uh, you know, five five years after the gold rush, where things, I mean, people are like flush with cash. Yeah. And the place is just hopping. It would be yeah. just a, an interesting thing. Yeah. Lots of cultures. Of course, white people uh, tended to control everything. But, uh, but you could see... Uh, the first influx of Chinese folks. A lot of people from Chile came to, came up here as uh, as miners. I mean, it would have been an interesting experience. Yeah, hookers all from France mm-hmm. uh, were um, were working in the casinos. I mean, it would have been just. Of course, on the other hand, no one bathed, so it would be yeah. really smelly. So it's like, hmm, do yeah. I really want to go to the land of smelly people? I don't know. Now that I'm focusing on this. Yeah, that's that's kind of how I feel. Just going back into the past, it's like like they didn't take baths, they didn't brush their teeth. You don't want to talk to anybody. You don't want anybody to open their mouth in exactly. your vicinity. And all you see are black teeth or no teeth. Yeah, it it smells like the black hole of Calcutta. I don't know. Yeah, maybe I don't want to go back. Though yeah, I don't. But. Part of me <laughs> is going like, what if I could go back to when I was like ten? Sure. And tell myself, all right, here's the deal, babe. Uh, in uh, 1964, try to get all your money. Uh, uh, don't spend all that allowance and just get silver coins because uh, there's going to be a run on silver in uh, 1970 and silver is going to go from $6 an ounce to $40 an ounce. Ooh. And you're going to be able to quadruple your money. So don't spend anything. Or, uh, you know what? There's going to be a, a, an oil shortage uh, in whatever that was, 1974, uh, and invest in oil stocks because they're going to quadruple. And I mean, if I could do that yeah. so that right now I'm a bozillionaire, yeah. Yeah. that would be fun. Yeah, no, even just okay. really basic, <laughs> like don't spend all your money, just buy yeah, some, yeah, buy some dividends, say. just buy some stuff that gives monthly dividends, and you'll exactly. have a little more money than you did. Jesus That's Christ, right. kid. 
So I if get if I could have only yeah, I get that. That's right. Like maybe like, hey, actually run scales instead of whatever chords you keep chopping at when you're playing <laughs> music, please. But um, you know, yeah, it is, there you go. It is what it is. But yeah, I mean, yeah, just the the all of recent history. Everything outside of recent history is just dirty, no showers, exactly. dying of everything. Not like, so good. It's like, do I want to live, go to the Renaissance? Do I want to go to ancient Egypt? No. No, Not really. I don't. It'd be interesting to see how, I guess just to see how people like talk to each other. Like what kind of accent. But did they talk to each other? Oh, I mean, I thought you meant subject matter. I'm that thinking too. like yeah. humans are, are, are essentially the same. Yeah. The last whatever, 50,000 years or I don't know, 100,000. Humans are humans, so yeah. they have all the same emotions. Exactly, and, yeah. So it's like, so. like to, it'd be interesting to like hear like a joke or something that you'd relate yeah. to, and go, "Whoa!" Like they, I mean, it's a little different, but it's like that, that's, that's a it. good point. I remember reading a book of letters that the ancient Romans had sent to each other, and the thing that stood out was, in many cases, they were going like, "This younger generation has no respect for their elders," and I'm going like, "Well." Nothing's changed because that's what people feel like now. Yeah, no, I mean, I've uh, even in this conversation, I've picked up on on certain things where it's like, like people uh, complain a lot about how there's how parents have softened up, and I yeah, get right. I get that. But like you said, your your mom was telling you she was like being your friend, like at a time when you were like, no, don't don't, don't be my friend. don't be my friend. And so it's like that was happening in the sixties. Right. That was happening before. Maybe we're just more aware of it for whatever reason. I know our education system is sounding kind of shitty right lately. I happen to go to like Newbury Park High School, which is uh, supposedly one of the best public high schools. Uh -huh. And so I have a pretty, I think I have a distorted view of what public education is or can be or whatever. And then like, like I suppose post COVID and things like that, that's, that really fucked up people's development. Yeah, but I guess so. It's like, like, yeah, like we can, we can blame like, the education system to some degree but like and maybe some parents to some degree but it's like like i don't know you, you like i think things don't change that much and like we have to like take initiative for what the problem is now rather than bitch about it but yeah. i don't know yeah, you know, yeah there's only so much you can do in a day and but and bitching has to be a lot of it so and bitching <laughs> can be a major component it's fun god knows it's fun yeah or goddess knows it's gaia knows it's fun Okay, what so else you got? Uh, another one uh, along the same lines, actually, that sort of hypothetical thing. We're kind of getting to the end of it here. Uh, sure. It's been a minute. But uh, if you could have spent your life studying fish anywhere else in the world besides yes. SoCal, okay. where might you uh, have dropped yourself? Nowhere. Really? I just really, I was brought up here. Yeah. I developed this intense interest in local fishes. Yeah. Oh, no. Well, I guess if, if, if I, um, Alaska. Okay. You know, someplace on the Pacific Coast. Okay. Yeah, Alaska or now. Yeah, Alaska. The, something I've noticed is that, um, like, while looking for like fish identification books and looking for mm -hmm. places where I might go to like catch like a hundred species in a vacation or something uh -huh. like that, uh, I've looked around for like what kind of fish are here, there, and everywhere. And like a place that's really barren of information is like, uh, oh, what's that? Chile, Argentina, the. Uh, the one on the on the Pacific Coast, Chile, Chile yes. is just like so much coast, no books on it, and like on the fisheries uh, or anything like that well, that I've found. I know that like th there's no books for the public. Okay. Um. There are scientific guides. Yeah. Uh. Yeah. In from Peru and Chile, 
but there's nothing like we have here. Yeah. And I don't know why. Yeah. That's a good question. There may be the perception there's not the market. Sure. Uh, there aren't uh, as many people who are divers, who are f or recreational fishermen, yeah. who have money. Uh, but that it's a good point. Yes. Yeah, because yeah. like there's a lot of books on North American fish in in the in saltwater environments, sure. and like whenever I try to look, okay, what about like South America, West Coast, nothing. South America, East Coast, nothing. Right. How about West Africa? Not much. No. Like East Africa, not much. No, like not I guess really. you'll find your game fish, and like if you if you end up going to a a fishing retreat or whatever in any any interaction whatsoever with the ocean, you're gonna like the di the divers will know like at least like you know the ten or twenty species the trevally and the uh, there's always going to be the the sardines and the herring and the those things and like it's but like finding They're finding books. like what's my target what am I gonna really target and what am I gonna Australia has a bunch of books New Zealand has some and then there are coral reef fish books guidebooks yeah, yeah. Um, and so it's not it's the guy who used to work with Ross Robertson. There is a underwater photographer yeah. who works in Australia who, who does uh, that kind of stuff for the that kind of golden triangle around Indonesia. And so that area has the highest diversity of fishes in the world. Yeah. And there are guidebooks okay. to that. That would be the place. Yeah. If, if literally you said, well, I got myself a week. Yeah. I want to catch 100 species. Yeah. If you were clever, you, you could al almost certainly do that. If yeah. you had a boat and all that stuff. Yeah. yeah. I th that's a good idea. I think I'll I'll put that one yeah. put that one on the list. Yeah, that would be interesting. Because, like, I, I went down to Puerto Vallarta. I am broke. I shouldn't have done that. And, like, me and my girlfriend went down there, and we got – like, I fished from the beach a couple of days. It's, I got the slender croaker, and I got the raucous grunt. And oh, yeah. what, what noise does that make? But uh, <laughs> it's uh, – <laughs> Uh, that's all I was able to get there. And then I took a panga ride and everybody hypes up Puerto Vallarta as like the place to go for all, for, for fishing. Like, Oh, you gotta do it. You're going to do so well, coastally offshore, whatever. I got, I got skunked on my panga ride. You know, that's, so it's like, like, and there were, there were like Bonita and Sierra's like popping around the boat yeah. for the better, better part of the day. You didn't and catch those? they, they would not bite jack shit. So I really wish that I knew that we had a bait tank for one on the panga. I didn't see it. It was in like the app oh, storage. Yeah. It right. was just in, in one of the compartments. I would I had sabikis on board. I wish I just dropped a sabiki and just No, I'm like, really surprised I guess I'm But like throwing I was throwing all sizes of like cast masters and like it's like okay, shiny gets a bit here. Like that's that's what it is and it was not happening. They well, didn't have talk to um well uh, one of my colleagues, she and her husband they go fly fishing. Yeah. In uh South of La Paz, and uh, there the and it's all panga, and there the panga people they get live bait, and they throw the they chum with the live yeah. bait, and then you, you cast streamers yeah. and shit them, but there's live bait, right? Yeah. And yeah. and I'm I know that if she had said we want to fish live bait today, well, there it is. So I'm it's too bad that your pongadero did not have yeah so, live bait. Yeah, that was. I would have I would have been willing to catch it like I was just there to catch species and yeah. I didn't get jack shit but such is life but uh, so. now I won't be traveling until like 2028 because of that but um, hey it's a good a, year it'll be a good year it'll be a good year yeah sure El Nino year but um, there you go I think everyone every year is every year is an El Nino, Nino year someplace. So.
I mean, the, the I suppose uh, I read an article that um, it was ba- it was from the San Francisco Chronicle or something. It, it was sort of central to their geography, but they were saying that like an El Nino, a really solid El Nino is due and brewing this year, and it has been in like the equatorial zone. Yeah. it's like very follow it. it is it is very present. But like the reason it, it hadn't as of like June, it hadn't hit California was because just the north or west winds had been blowing for so long that and unusually long that like it just wasn't letting the um the, the southern southerly currents come mm-hmm. up and you know so like we're we could have had a, probably could have had a, a just as good a year if not better with like the dorado and other tropical fish uh-huh. coming up but alas yeah well but um uh any uh you have any burning questions or curiosities that you still have in your area of study like a, like things that you just um, haven't answered that you want to answer that maybe you're close to burning uh, maybe not burning but you know curiosities that you're like oh, I have, you're I mean, chasing it's, it's endless but they tend yeah. to be kind of idiosyncratic and small and oh, I like that stuff and uh, and like that so yeah. uh, I'm still interested in like basic life history of fishes yeah I mean there are so many fishes out here just asking well how long does this species live and the answer is well we don't know we've never right. like the chameleon rockfish yeah okay uh to do a real good life history study of the chameleon rockfish it would be good to get 50 of those every single month for a year yeah well that's like 600 chameleons that's really hard <laughs> it it it's if you could get 60 in a year yeah that would be pretty really hard impressive. you need a yeah. lot of people with a lot of hooks yeah flailing the water so there, there's a species of rockfish that i'm interested in yeah i i definitely if i could if one were available i'd like to do more surveys using a submarine because going down in those little subs was like oh my god this is so much fun yeah um but so what's even, the what's the visibility when you like is it because I'm so used to, I don't know, like 10 foot visibility. Oh. Like once you get to a certain depth, does it like clear out and you can see for oh, miles sure. and miles? Yes. Yeah. It's dark though. Yeah. So it, you only can see as far as your lights will carry you, sure. but it's essentially infinite. When, yeah. when you get down into 600 feet of water, 800,000 feet of water, it's as you can see as far as the lights will take how, you. How deep have you gone? Uh, about 2,000 feet. <sighs> 600 meters do you get claustrophobic like no that, I, that's but, but, uh, but right i'm afraid of heights but i've never felt claustrophobic and the the main sub we used was about the size of a telephone booth so you had two people a pilot and an observer and it was it's no longer than a telephone booth and very slightly wider than one and yeah uh, i had a reporter from the LA Times come out one time and and he had real problems because of that closeness right yeah I couldn't I couldn't do it no matter what I wanted to know it was tons of fun I mean I really liked it so I'd like to when was the last time you did it oh 13 I think 12 something like that and that was with another sub another two-person one that was not as useful to us so but but the original sub the guy who owned it uh, just lost, well, for whatever reason, refused to get it, it pressure tested again. You, you, to be certified, you have yeah. to 
have things pressure tested and the like. And he just never did it, so we lost the use of that. When that sub imploded back east, whenever that was a, a month ago, and I remember reading the first, the first story, and they said they had lost communication with it. And they had lo already lost communication a few hours before. So in those cases, what you do is if the sub loses communication, conceivably it could be because the communication system went out. Yeah. Okay. Well, you don't stay down. You right. immediately go to the surface. Uh, the subs are usually colored such they could be seen from a distance. They usually have radar reflectors. They have surface comms. Even if those are out, the research vessel can find you. And the fact that they hadn't found it yet meant to me like, well, that fucker imploded because that's the major danger. And, you know, we, days went by and, and yeah, the sub had imploded and they so found is, the pieces. So is there no, uh, with, or with yours or with any, I, I would think that there'd be like, um, for lack of a better term, like a safety rope or safety cord that like would be connected to the boat. Oh, no. You just, you're just free. No, no, you're free. Wow. Yeah, there are what are called remotely operated vehicles that That's are, probably what I'm that have no people in them. Yeah. And you have a fiber optic cable and you have also uh, other cables and they're connected. Yeah. But these, you know, you're just, you're free. I would, I would want that, that fiber optic. Well, <laughs> yeah, like, I mean. Be there for the humans, not the non-human one. Yeah. I lose the there was only one time that we yeah. got caught in, in the sub on the bottom. Yeah. And we were caught for like 10 minutes. And in that time, I'm going like, how much oxygen do we actually have? Well, we have two days. Can the Navy send out something to get us in that time? Maybe. Can we free ascent? Can open the hatch? No, we're in 500 feet of water. Can't do that. So yeah, there was a there was a, a ten minutes at the most when I'm going like, huh, this is saying not all your, that great. Saying your prayers. Yeah, yeah kind of. That's so uh, alarming. <laughs> yeah. So so I would I'd like to go back out and and uh, and do surveys in areas where we never uh, got a chance to do them. Yeah. Any like high spots or anything in particular that we never got a chance to do yeah. um well one thing we never get permission is off baja california <laughs> no one's ever done the spots off off there yeah and uh people fish them but right. they, they've never that would be really interesting there's a big rock cod reef off of punta colnet yeah that uh, uh i fished uh on a research vessel we were catching fish for genetic studies mm -hmm. and that's a big area it's fished hard yeah but there's still a lot of fish on it yeah so that colnet area that would be cool there's some good spots off of guadalupe yeah and off cedros yeah and then when you turn the corner at eugenia there's some smaller spots that would be fun there's some rocks off bahia magdalena so any of those yeah that would all be cool but then um it but would like involve um getting permits and, yeah. and that's kind of that would be tricky um has anyone done a alijos uh, oh no not with a not with a sub uh -huh. they you know a lot of diving yeah. goes on there that would be cool yeah sometimes you can't tell though for instance like big rock on mm -hmm. the backside of san nick mm -hmm. you're going like well that must be fabulous because it's this little rock and it sticks out and then it goes straight down yeah and so i i was we took the sub there and the first thing is that the divers have stripped all the rock scallops off. You can see all the 
the scars where they took all. So the, the top is like, oh, there's a lot of muscles here, all right. And then it turns out that the sides are so um, sheer, there's very few caves or crevices. So there yeah. aren't that many fish. Yeah. And so you, you just never know. Farnsworth, on the other hand, gone to the bottom of Farnsworth, there's caves, there's crevices, the, the uh, purple hydrocoral go down. I can't remember what we figured, like 150 feet, 180 feet. So there's a lot of stuff for fish to look at. Yeah. There's some incredible places, like the, the footprint, which is a reef. Uh, if you look at the Anacapa Santa Cruz Island Passage, yeah. and you go out about four miles straight out from it. Uh, like in between or like do? In between. Okay. And you go out to sea. On, it's on the nav charts, yeah. and it actually looks on the nav charts like a footprint. Yeah, and um, that feature is fucking phenomenal. Oh my god, there are caves you can we could have taken the sub into. Yeah, I mean it's just incredible, and all the invertebrates and and it must have been before people fished it like fucking balls to the wall because I can remember fishing out of Cisco's around 1963 and uh on the Coraloma it was Jack Ward's first boat and we were there in the winter and just loaded the boat up with bocacci's there's a lot of uh calcods and uh by the time we first went there it there was fish there but it was nothing like that because yeah. people have fished it really hard yeah. for decades and you do a lot of you can put the hurt to a fish population with 40 anglers, all of whom at the time were allowed 20 rock out apiece. Wow. In a day, you can see how you could yeah. put uh, the herd, and yeah. if you go there day after day and yeah. year after year. I anyway, uh, but the, the it's beautiful there. I mean, yeah. I, I'd like to go back to that, yeah. definitely. It's cool. So is there uh, uh, any any possible possibility of studies that like potentially like hook and line anglers could help out with by like i don't know there already are yeah so there is and i can't remember the initials but there is um studies that are done off monterey and studies that are done at the channel islands where uh, anglers are invited to come aboard and basically scientists are doing fish surveys uh, having anglers use a specific number of hooks and of the same size and yeah. using the same bait. And the skippers are told, well, uh, we've randomly uh, divided this whole reef up into little squares and we've randomly decided that today from 8 until 9, you're going to go to that square. Yeah. And then from 11 to 12, you're going to go to that square. And... Um, that's ongoing. I yeah, I've, I've heard of that for called. the. Uh, I thought that was. I know they do that for MPAs. Um, yeah, it's for MPAs. Yeah, inside and outside. Yeah, MPAs. so I, I know a couple boats that are involved with yeah, that. Exactly. So, yeah. Um, other than that, uh, I don't know of any directed scientific surveys yeah. that use anglers. Gotcha. Yeah. Well, if you, there may be, but yeah. it's out of my area. If you ever need me to um, flash freeze some some corvina or some some yellowfin croakers, we have. <laughs> if you open the freezer there, we have. Uh, oh, I eat the bocaccio. We have uh, flash frozen halibut and flash frozen lobster, and it's fun because 
my folks, they love to kill things. Yeah. And uh, when they finish their study for the day, they go like, oh, well, we got an hour. Yeah. Let's go catch some uh, uh, bocacis or yeah. whatever. So. You know, I've, I've floated up with uh, uh, one one good size, like four foot fork length thresher and one like 80, 100 pound bluefin for the year. And Yum. I don't need to kill anything else, but I'm definitely going to go to the 14 at some point. Threshers are yummy, man. They're good. Yeah. I just, I just did, a, for the first time I did... Uh, like an hour at 200 degrees uh, yesterday and like came out a lot better than whatever I was doing before. Huh. I cut it, I cut the steaks a little bit thick, so they were not pan frying very well. But uh, yeah, I caught a white shark one time. It was better than almost any shark. Yeah. Yeah. It was, well, I mean, if you like swordfishy yeah. kind of thing, my, my wife likes softer things. Yeah. So for her, it wouldn't have been very good. It was a juvenile. It was only about. Four and a half feet long, something like that. Yeah. Caught it off of uh, kind of the Huntington Beach area. Yeah. And years ago when it was legal. Of course, yeah. And uh, staked it up, and it was really good. Yeah. It was as good as like Mako Shark was. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm, I'm happy to have those two in the fridge. Uh, That's good. I, it's a rockfish can be, uh, as you've, I heard on the podcast you were talking about the like the they you know some some are soft and some like Boccaccio bite back that and they true <laughs> and and cow cod bite back it took and... me uh, a long time to like Boccaccio and yeah. uh, uh, I've started calling them paisans because they're Italian and they have that, that uh, yeah, face yeah. but uh, under slung jaw but, yeah so I, I can't stop doing that so apologize if I just end up saying it but um yeah like that's all I could catch on the uh-huh. rockfish grounds out of Huntington and so I was like what like. What am I gonna do with this? I used to hate these. Like I used to give these away. Right. With my my dad used to complain about them. That's right. And so like once I started, I was like, well, what else is chewy? Calamari. What if I treated it like calamari, where it's like, what if I just deep fried it instead of like yeah. trying to pan fry it, right. and then it's like chewing back at me. And so as soon as I started doing that, I was like, oh, this is like this is it. But so. it depends on your your taste. For instance, I find that blue rockfish are just too soft. Speckled rockfish. I feel that with a lot of rockfish now. Too yeah. soft. Yeah. Um, the bottom rockfish tend to be firmer. Yeah, it's the schooling, the schooling but, but ones. I've, like I've caught Spacatio way up. Like I caught, oh, yeah. like so I don't know, but like I know my my first experience with too soft of fish was with uh, I demanded with my dad. We went to fish off of Deer Creek and of Ventura, uh-huh. and uh, like I, I I insisted on keeping the blacksmith and opali, and those oh, were well. just like inedible. Like, just, yeah, opali just also applesauce. to me they have that iodiney taste. I caught sure. one of the biggest fish I caught surfishing when I was a kid was near Big Rock Beach, and uh, I caught a two and a half or three pound opali, and I'm going all right, and it was I did not like that yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah, but again, different strokes for different folks. Yeah, right? no, I I hear a lot of people like that, and. I heard you you don't care that much for yellowtail, which I I, I kind of I agree, and I, I think People I might have gotten fired from Dana Point for for having that opinion. Uh. But uh, <laughs> but hold uh, on just a sec, sure. But like mackerel, like I've as long as it's filetable, I really like mackerel. Like, if you uh, if you handle it right, absolutely. Yeah, no, I was I was constantly like trolling the. Uh, it wasn't even trolling, but like. People would be like, "Can you eat mackerel?" And like, that's all you catch at Dana Point on half days. And so, like, people, you know, all the everybody, nobody wants to keep them. But then I'm like cutting them up for bait, and then I'm just like 
cutting a fillet for myself and just like eating it like while yeah. I'm doing it. If it's right off the out of the water. Oh yeah. It's really good. Yeah. I ate a bat ray once, and it was really good, but they're so cute that it, it was just a one-off. <laughs> I can't heard, bear to kill them. I hear they're, uh, uh, they taste like scallops, or they can, be, they can be a replacement of scallops. Well, historically. So I've cut them open. They, like, I've used them for yeah. bait for seven gills, and I know they've got that, that cartilaginous uh-huh. uh, plate That's inside. Center. And uh, it's a very, uh, for, really easy to put them on the hook for bait. I've used them for uh, seven gills. And uh, gotten seven gills doing that. Another <laughs> one I'm curious about, but I'm not gonna. I never. I only caught five seven gills, and uh, I didn't keep any of them. I might have. I should. Maybe I should have tried the one of the smaller ones. I noticed that those, those were really hard to catch. First of all, yeah. the second, especially from the beach. But um, what I noticed was whenever I did get a bite, they were always. It, it was always came in succession. Like I would. I would never get just one bite for the night. But there would be dozens of nights where I wouldn't get anything. So I started to think, like, these are are wolf pack fish, right? Like, I don't know what what people... I don't think so. No? Maybe it was... I mean, let's take a step back. Sure. So there's not been a lot of work done on seven gills. Yeah, I was in it, yeah. And most of the work is, like, in Puget Sound, places like that. Yeah. And, or... Well, they catch them in San Francisco Bay, but I don't think anyone's ever really tag them or anything right so we don't know for sure sure um those big sharks there's no percentage to them to travel in packs because then you wind up having to share your prey and unless the prey is like really big then that's what i was kind of thinking though like well where it's like maybe they like i i know that they're generally scavengers is that no no so like, Almost nothing is a scavenger, it turns out. Okay. We like to think they are, things yeah. are. And there are th- things like hagfish. Sure. Hagfish will eat dead stuff. Uh, yeah. Crabs. Crabs eat dead stuff. But almost no fish uh, specializes in sure. dead fish. Because yeah. there are not all that many dead fish around. Yeah. So a uh, so major part of seven-gill diet is like sea lions. So that would make like sense that. if they wolf, if they were if they were traveled in packs and like got you know teamed up on one sea lion because they've you know one mouth is does one does only so much Seven I would feel gill like can eat well yeah the answer know. is sure maybe <laughs> yeah. I mean I don't, I don't know I I, I I don't know so back to your point sure yeah you have you had the sense that there was more se- than one seven gill. Yeah, in, in the vicinity. And yeah, sure. Maybe there there is. So I yeah, I mean, in the in the four days that I've had success catching them, I always had more than one bite. Yeah. And so I thought that was interesting compared sure. to certain other fish, like bat, just, bat ray or I'm something. I'm trying like to that. think if any of the other large sharks are known to travel in group, like white sharks or right. basking sharks or basking sharks. Yes. Uh, they they actually travel or can travel in groups, but if you look at the big sharks yeah. that eat big things, yeah. so white sharks not so much, uh, bonita sharks definitely not, uh, tiger sharks no. Would you include uh, threshers in in this uh, world? Thresher sharks eat anchovies, right? 
and so, squids. So, so I wouldn't school count up them. Or at least the there's those big aggregations of of hammerheads worldwide, but the ones that are no, the best known are the ones off La Paz. But those are relatively small. Those aren't the great hammerheads. Those are smaller ones. I don't know. I mean, yeah. the the ones I brought up are not known to form big aggregations. Yeah. No, I, I mean, know. not many. I don't hear much about the seven gills. Maybe. I mean, I maybe They're I should. Not real abundant. Yeah. Both six gills and seven gills. Neither one of them are uh, astronomically abundant in right. Southern California. Yeah, that's they, they're here. <laughs> Twenty at twenty listens per month for maybe three hundred years. I think I might see my first penny. So maybe well, two hundred years. Yeah. So or maybe not. Yeah. It'll it'll, it'll grow. <laughs> we'll see. I'll see. Well, I'm proud to be uh, in the early stages. No, the I'm formative. I'm actually, stages. yeah, I'm so happy to that you said yes and so easily, and you're so chill. You were so chill about it. It was just like, yeah, sure. Yeah, I, I realized I didn't even send you like a link to it before, so you didn't even know if it was a real thing. I don't care. And yeah, you just want to chat, and that's cool. And like I've oh, been, good. like I've yeah, just for like literally decades at this point, I've been thinking about like maybe I should email him about this, that, and the other, and I just didn't because it was oh. like he's busy. I don't know. Like no, I have no I'm just life. a kid. People like, send me stuff all the time. So, so. like it's cool to know that's that cool. that you're you're just out here and down to hang and all these things and like uh, it's uh, uh yeah I mean. Thanks a ton for coming on the yeah, podcast. I sure. think, and also, like, yeah, your your name does get thrown around quite a bit, and like, it's uh, a weird thought. It's yeah. A, yeah, I mean, you're like, like whether you like it or not, you're like, like a C list, B list celebrity in the fishing world <laughs> in go. Southern California, and it's so I kind and maybe because of that, that was another reason why I hit you up because it's like you don't really like you. I don't. I couldn't find like your your story or anything like on online. Like I found that that one podcast. I guess you've done like three. There was one that I didn't really listen to, and uh, it was just like you know, like I would like to like shine a light on you in some or just like properly document sure. like a conversation. I just let that. let people know like that you're like you're cool and smart and funny and um and yeah and it's all good working and out here. So to that effect, if I mean, I always make the same offer. If people want to send me a picture of a fish or yeah. whatever and go like, what is this? Yeah. Sure. So I'll fine. definitely do that. And I, I only have one more minute question. Sure. Um, I was, uh, and I brought it up in that email. The first email was, uh, uh, I, I read a, like an article from the Marlin Magazine or Blue Water Sportsman or some bullshit about cobia that got released or they got, they escaped a pen yes. in like Central America uh, and they... Uh, presumably uh, escaped and went were found at least 500 miles north and uh, uh, they'd, they'd gone from like Panama to like Costa Rica or some bullshit and uh, and so, so I was curious yes. like of course we don't see them like nobody's really heard of them since and I also realized that um, they're in the West Pacific Southwest Pacific yes that confuses but, matters so they're yeah. found in the they're found worldwide yeah except in the Eastern Pacific yeah so they're in the Western Pacific from Japan south and in the Indian Ocean all over the Atlantic. So about a month ago, really, I get a, uh, an email and a photograph 
and uh, a couple divers, one diver, shot one in Hawaii. So I emailed the guy and I said, yeah, I'm, I'm interested. Yeah. And uh, I, I brought in a guy from the Bishop Museum in Honolulu and we all had a kumbaya Zoom and the guy in Hawaii is going to do the heavy lifting, the biologist. Um, but it begs the question. I mean, the first thing you go is like, well, that's an escapee from Ecuador. But they live in Japan. Yeah. And maybe it came from Japan. Yeah. Right. So then the question is, well, can we figure that out like genetically? Mm hmm. And maybe we can. The literature on the genetics of cobia imply that there may be differences between the ones that live in the Western Pacific mm -hmm. and the ones that live in the Caribbean. And the fish that escaped came from the Caribbean. Yeah. So, but it does, I mean, if, if it is from Ecuador, then you're going like, well, number one, is this an escapee or is this the kid of an escapee? Mm, or the yeah, grandkid of an escapee. Yeah. If it's the grandkid or kid, then the implication is, well, then they're reproducing. Yeah. Which they may or may not successfully do. Right. Um, if they start getting any off Puerto Vallarta or Cabo San Lucas, then you don't need to do genetics. Yeah. Uh, then it's really, well, these are probably from Ecuador and right. they're moving north and probably they move the other way too. Yeah. A lot of them escaped. Thousands escaped. Yeah. So it's a good experiment. Yeah. And I mean, it, only, we'll it didn't take happens. that many for stripers to take over the West Coast. That's right. But that was in an enclosed area. Okay. So uh, they were first, uh, well, it's in my book, but it was like 1875 or something. And they were put in the, the uh, San Pablo Bay area. And uh, pretty quickly they grew up and reproduce yeah um, but because it was enclosed the amount of danger that that uh, was engendered to these small fish when they were released was probably much lower than throwing yourself in the Pacific Ocean yeah so yeah it didn't take many for that well I mean you think of all of the all of the little gobies uh, that come from Japan that now live in the San Francisco Bay yeah well they came as ballast ballast water so uh -huh. it didn't take much for them to make it um, yeah. there are Atlantic salmon now that live off British Columbia that are escapes from the pens there you know just yeah all kinds of things there's yeah. eucalyptus that are growing <laughs> outside yeah they uh, I was looking at while well, I was maybe it was during that but I've I've been curious about you know migration patterns of all kinds of fish and uh um, and I was looking around and I, it, it's just been in my mind for the longest time that like fish don't travel across the equator. And then I realized that, uh, I don't know where, where I got that, if that's true, if that's, but then I realized uh, I was looking at a blue Marlin, uh, tagging studies and they do, um, sure. a lot of fish do. Yeah. So I was, I was blown away that, um, they'll come, uh, I was seeing like a tracking pattern from like New Zealand up to like Hawaii. They might've yeah. gotten all the way to the West coast of Pacific. Right. Like, yeah. so like when I saw that, it was like, Oh, there's like, I know that bluefin do a similar thing, except I suppose it's more, it's more in like life cycles where like they, 
they like uh, they breed somewhere. The the sub three hundred pounders they, hang out here, and then once they get over three hundred, they go over to like like Japan, New Zealand, like Japan. or something. Um, they breed kind of off the Philippines in that area. Okay, and then uh, a subpopulation, sub a percentage of them as whatever two or three year olds wind up off of Baja California and off of Southern California and they hang out for a while as you say they get really big and then they go back um, and then they come all the way back down to the Philippines to reproduce but the bluefins south of the equator are a different species mm-hmm. that's right southern so bluefin too right yeah so it's Tunis orientalis here yeah Tunis tinus in the Atlantic and then there's a southern bluefin whose name escapes me. Yeah, yeah. that's right. But, but to your point, not every fish crosses the equator. Right. Some do, but... Yeah, I mean, I was... Uh, you mentioning that, like, the cobia was found in Hawaii. It just made me think about the blue marlin that, like... Uh-huh. It's like, it didn't give a fuck. Like, <laughs> if it was in New Zealand, Hawaii, or Baja, like, it was just going everywhere. So it's like, yeah. I don't know if that, if that cobia... Like I suppose it's rare that a cobia would be in Hawaii, and it would, and it's like, you know, unheard of that they're in Southern California. But right. like, so I suppose the cobia do follow some etiquette, unlike the the blue marlin. So, well, right. I mean, the blue marlin, it's probably genetically fixed. Yeah. Those kind of migrations. And yeah. The cobia, because they're not native. Yeah. Here, anyway, um, don't have that. They don't even proclivity think about it. Yeah. To do it. It's all good stuff. I mean, uh, none of us are going to be shocked if Kobe appear off Baja California yeah. or off Southern California. I think a few people would be, but, but we're uh, not. Well, I mean, it, <laughs> obviously, yeah. most people will be shocked. Some people will not. Yeah. So I got a boogie. Okay, perfect. That this was, was lovely. Good timing. This thank was you. great. Uh, was thank fun. you so much for uh, taking your uh, taking the time. Yes, and uh, yes. uh, and uh, we'll send you fish pictures whenever, oh, whenever I please.